Welcome back to Ironside's podcast. In this episode, I sat down with Officer Chris Ha, who is a hostage negotiator and canine handler. He got into his career. Mostly, we talk about police culture, the changes that have happened over the last couple of years and how that impacts officers on the street today, um, and particularly how it's influencing things for officers that have been on the street for a while and those that are coming on now. Uh, in this episode, you'll hear uh, Chris walk through a few of his stories, but uh, one of those was a very, very specific officer-involved shooting with his uh, canine partner. Uh, it got pretty dramatic, so stick around and listen for that one. These episodes are sponsored by Red Dot Fitness Training Products and Programs. If you'd like to find out more about those programs, feel free to visit us and reach out to us over at rdftrainonline.com. That's rdftrainonline.com. Welcome to Iron Sights After Dark. During my 25 plus years in the fitness industry, I've always been passionate about expanding my physical, mental, and hard skills to be prepared for whatever life might throw at me. From fitness to firearms and beyond, taking a holistic approach to being prepared has led me on a journey to seek and share both knowledge and skills from expert resources in the civilian, LEO, military, and first responder communities. The mission of this podcast is to help others expand their capabilities and knowledge of preparedness while building strength in the community that shares similar goals and values. So ultimately, we contribute together and grow together. Welcome back to the Iron Size Podcast After Dark. I'm with a new friend, Chris Howe. Welcome to the show, dude. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm stoked to have you down here. Uh, I'll keep this really brief, and then we'll just kind of jump right into your story. Um, you are a law enforcement officer. I have a um, I have an affinity for canine officers. I just in in my recent like journey in life, I've become more acquainted with more of those. And you are a canine officer currently active, um, and uh, that is maybe a little bit a part of this story. I think it it, it definitely ties in. Just so happened we got to get connected through uh, a, a good friend of ours who we train with regularly, and and uh, put us in touch. So welcome to the show, man. Thanks for taking time on your day off to come down and chat. Hey, thank you for having me, and thank you for for being willing to share our side and and be really objective and and be able to kind of personalize the the human that's behind the badge for our job. Yeah, I'm honored to I'm honored when people <laughs> agree to do that cuz I I understand there's there's trust that comes in with that and making sure that, you know, it's fair. Uh, and it's a fair platform to do that, particularly in today's day and age. Uh, I'm doing my best. I'm learning. I never imagined I'd be here. If you'd asked me a year ago, I would have never imagined I'd been in the in this situation. So I feel honored and I'm also I'm humbled by it. And at times I get a little nervous. I mean, some people will be like, really, you're getting nervous. You sound, you sound so controlled and whatever. No, I, I generally want to do a good job and make sure that it's represented well in the best way I can. And I'm not a skilled journalist, right? I'm just a dude who, um, who's trying to make a connection between the community and the larger community as a whole, because I have friends inside the community. I think it's very misunderstood a lot of times. And that's not what this is about. It's all the time. It's not about, well, you guys just don't understand us. So, you know, we have to talk about this in this particular way. It's more like we want you to understand differently than what you, you, you may currently understand it. And you might not necessarily have, um, the, the, the inputs that you're getting from certain levels in order to get that understanding. So this is just our way of, of doing it. So dude, let's just, I'll stop talking. I'd love to hear a little bit more about you, kind of your background, um, who you are, where you came from and catch us up. Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, I was born and raised in Fremont. Grew up there my whole life. Have family, have friends still there. Mm-hmm. It's my hometown. Okay. Uh, after um, high school, I, I wasn't really sure what I was going to do. Um, well, let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, yesterday, 9-11 anniversary came around. Right. Mm-hmm. That was a huge uh, influence, influencing factor in my life. Uh, it really affected me and my family. Uh, my mom was in Washington, D.C. Uh, on 9-11. Uh, she had to drive home for six days with a coworker to get back here. So it, it was a big thing that really caused change in my life that I wanted to, to be out there to help people. I wanted to, to serve in some way. And, um, as, as time went on after high school, I worked in construction and, and I thought about, oh, maybe I'll be a fireman. I, I always thought that was the coolest job. Yeah. They always world, say that, right? right? I say, who doesn't love a fireman? Yeah. And, and <laughs> I'll tell you what, looking back my next life, you got that fire. Gig, right? But um, so to be clear though, the nine 11 thing happened while you were still in high school. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So you're a young man, formable years. Yep. Guy trying to figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So I wanted to serve people mm-hmm. in, in any way that I could. So, uh, my best friend growing up was a police explorer. Um, and then he ended up, um, getting a job, a civilian job uh, at the police department. And that was just kind of a cool couple hour a week job. And and he said, hey, do you want to apply for this? And I'm like, yeah, sure. Seems like it'd be something fun. Okay. And that really evolved into me getting immersed into it. I was going on ride-alongs with officers as often as I could, sometimes a couple times a week. And I really fell in love with it. I really became, it really became my passion and my calling. And at the uh, age of 22, which I don't know why they would hire me, but at 22 years old, Mm. They hired me, they gave me a badge and a gun, and they said, go out and conquer. Right, so, okay. So, you, I mean, that's a, that evolution is actually not uncommon. I've heard that. A lot of, a lot of guys get into, um, so I've had a, I had a firefighter near Pernay who, same thing, went through the Explorer program uh, with the firefighters and ultimately kind of expanded into that as he, as he, um, as he got older. And so I, I don't think a lot of people are familiar with that. This is like a this is this journey often starts like very young age for for people, and you're not you didn't come from a family in law enforcement. I didn't no. get that. So this was just again very impacting time in a lot of people's lives. I remember I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing nine eleven, um, and so it takes you down this path. And okay, so as you're an explorer, can you maybe explain this a little bit to people that may not be familiar with this program? What is what do police explorers do? So I was never an explorer. My best friend was, okay. and, and I feel bad now because I made fun of him. The whole time. So it's like Boy Scouts to to an extent in terms of like there can be a negative stigma attached there. There can, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, But, you know, though, they do, they used to do some really cool stuff and they still do um, a little bit less than before. But, you know, they, they made them learn radio codes and radio etiquette, how to talk on the radio. They, they gave them uniforms. They, you know, taught them how to present yourself, how to dress appropriately. Mm -hmm. You know, they had to learn various community topics, functions. They, they basically were out volunteering their time mm-hmm. doing traffic control, helping with the elderly, all the, these kinds of things. And it, it was, it's a great segue, you know, from the time that you're in high school to college to the time that you go to the Academy, right? You've already kind of been immersed in that culture and in that life. Mm-hmm. And they've taught you a lot of things that have prepared you. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, it, it's, it's part of the journey for more people then I'll probably maybe a lot of people in the civilian world or non-LEO world might 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 know. But you, what you were getting was sort of the cool stories and watching your friend go through all this while you were totally. swinging hammers or whatever <coughs> you're doing in the construction business. Is that what I heard you yep. say? Yep. All right. So 22, 22, you're a young man, right? So you, you, yeah. you're a young man. And so you go into the academy. 
Were there any big surprises? Like when you got in, like this looked cool from the outside, but I didn't really realize this is what this was going to be like. Or, I mean, and I'm talking about Academy before you even on the street. Uh, I don't think there were any big um, surprises in the Academy. I think a, a lot of people helped me and prepared me mm-hmm. and, and got me ready for that environment. So the Academy really wasn't that bad. Uh, it's a very controlled, safe environment. You know, you, you, you can make your mistakes and those kinds of things. Uh, so the Academy wasn't bad, but that transition out onto the street into training at 22, you know, no life experience really to, to speak of. That's where I was going to go with this, you know, right? because it, yeah, as you're 22, almost whatever, 23 years old. And now you're on the street, whether you're an FTO program or not. I think the whole life experience thing is the big gap, right? I mean, totally. you can't get the cop experience, if you will, or being an officer experience without being an officer for, for a long time. But the stuff that you run into out there and the people that you run into out there, like life prepares you for these kinds of conversations and, right. and, and whatever else. Um, I mean, was there anything in that first, that first year that really is, you were like, Oh shit, this is, I'm, I'm only 23 years old or 22 years old. And I'm doing this. I got to say it was the everyday stuff. Like you send me to a domestic violence call and at 22 years old, you, <laughs> I'm giving somebody marriage advice, <laughs> right? I mean, right. I, I'm giving somebody advice on parenting their kids. Yeah. That's a lot I, to ask, man. What do yeah. I know about any of that at 22? But at, you know, at the same time I did the best that I could and I tried to learn and stay humble and life, life taught me as we went along. Right. I mean, I, I, I had to learn about those things in my personal life. I had to learn about these things through dealing with those incidents at work. And eventually you get that experience and, and you start to feel comfortable in your own skin. So let me ask you about that. Actually, it's never really come up for me. Like, what business does a police officer have and have giving, I'm asking this in quotes, like what business does a cop have giving a married couple that's having marital problems that's now turned into a call to the police, a call for help? What business do you have giving them marital advice or advice on how to raise their kids? I mean, when did that become the, the, the job of the police department? When did the public uh, expect us to, to wear a hundred different hats and one of those being marriage counselor and therapist and yeah. all this stuff? I couldn't tell you. I could tell you that uh, I don't offer my own personal advice to people that don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. That's not, you're absolutely right. That's not my place. I'm there to do a job. But there are people that genuinely are, are at a loss. They're at a point where they just don't know what to do. They don't know where to turn to for help. They don't know where to look. And those are the people that will ask you and that want your opinion and want your help. And I didn't get into this job to, to just slip people off. You know, I, I you said it, help, you wanted right? a service. Yeah, you I want to serve. I want to help. And, and any way that I can help people, I want to, I want to do that. And I want to feel good that the advice that I gave them is the advice that I would give my family. So yeah, I guess that's what I was asking just sort of, and there's a bit of sarcasm and facetiousness in asking the question, because I know that is a large part of the job. I mean, you're showing up to these calls where it's people behaving badly, right. And not knowing how to handle the social dynamic of whatever situation they're in. Something gets said, maybe it's not, maybe it doesn't get physical. Like you hope it, it doesn't, but somebody's felt the need to, they need to break out of this situation that they're in, whatever it is, the argument, the altercation, whatever. And so the, the 911, we call 911. And then you guys are the ones that show up. It's not a, it's not a marriage counselor that shows up. It's not a, a psychologist, psychiatrist, somebody in the mental health or uh, relationship health, health piece. It's you guys. And so you're faced with these, these things. Uh, that's a lot. I guess I never really actually thought about it that way in that, if, if this person just had a few more skills in their belt, we wouldn't be here right now. Number one. And maybe their relationship would be better. Right. Sure. Yeah. 
you know, I guess I never really looked, looked at it like that. Um, at, at any point, did that make you, you know, having to deal with that stuff on the day to day and kind of learning those things along the way at any point, did you kind of get, this is dumb. Like what? I, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to have to have these conversations anymore and, and kind of switch off. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the cool factor of, of being a cop and doing our job eventually kind of wears off. Right. And these, those calls start to become mundane and you can start to get cynical. You can start to lose compassion for people. Um, and it, it really does affect how you interact with them. And it, it doesn't mean that you don't care on the inside, but this is just another call that you're answering. Right. I mean, and who knows what you answered beforehand, who knows how your week's been. Sometimes you just want to get in and get out. Cause you got a million other things on your plate. You got a ton of other calls holding, and so, yeah, sometimes it, it can be hard to, to show that compassion to those people. Yeah. I guess if I'm standing on the other end of that, like <laughs> I've called you because this is like, to me at this time, it's like the worst moment in my life, Absolutely. right? Like I was so scared or so helpless. I had to call somebody with a badge and a gun to come rescue me, so to speak from the situation. And if you're just handling it the same way you handled the 10 other calls for the same exact thing, even that day, like I, I could, I you know, I get it. I get where people could be looking at it and cops are, cops suck. You know, cops are just dicks, you know, like yep. they don't want to help me. They just want me to shut up and go back to, you know, my miserable life or whatever. And they, they just want to go back to doing what they do. Um, I, I guess I can get, I get that. So talk about the evolution as you're, as you're coming through as a, as a cop, like you, you, I, I kind of understand the process, right? You go through the academy, you come out, you go through the FTO program, you go out on the street and you get into some stuff. And along the way, you are introduced to some different things. Uh, you know, there's different uh, task forces. There's different things. Did you do anything special in your first couple of years that that drove you one direction or another? Were you exposed to anything like that? Uh, I want. I probably had, I don't know, maybe two, three years on. Um, and again, being kind of a young, naive guy, I didn't really have a lot of, um, world experience. And I wasn't that great at talking to a, a wide variety of people. And it, uh, occurred to me one day, you know, I'm going to have to use my mouth a whole lot more than I'm going to have to use anything else that I've been trained to do. Mm -hmm. And so becoming a part of our hostage negotiations team was something that I was encouraged to do. And I got onto that team and the training that we were provided was phenomenal. Was it entered? Was it inside the department? Or did they send you outside? Uh, they sent us outside. Okay. Yeah. So I've heard this before where sometimes it'll get like the FBI will come in cause they're like the, they're supposed to be like the best at this thing or whatever. Is that what you went through? Yep. Yeah. yeah so. We went through a lot of those classes. So talk about that. Talk about some of the things <laughs> you, you learn and how it develop how you develop through the process. So we, you, you had to learn to communicate. You had to basically learn to be a chameleon. You had to be able to change who you are to communicate with a very wide variety of people. And you have to be able to communicate on their level for, for you to build any kind of rapport, any kind of trust to be able to resolve a situation, right? If people can't trust you and, and, and what you're showing them, what your body language is showing them, the words that you're saying aren't matching it. You're just going to be buttonheads mm -hmm. the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so that really gave me a good perspective on the street on how to talk to various groups of people, be on their level, gain their trust. Mm -hmm. Um, you learn how to think of things in a little bit different mentalities based on kind of what you're dealing with. Right. So we were part of a hostage negotiations team. You think of that as, you know, like here in the movies, right. How often do people really take people hostage? I don't know, man. How it's often a, does it happen? <laughs> Tell me. It, I don't it's know. a, it's a very rare deal. Right. Okay. But how often are we out because people are in, 
having the worst day of their lives and they're having a crisis that they're either wanting to commit suicide or, you know, what, whatever else that may be. I imagine be, that's the majority that's, of the calls. It, it's constant. And then the, the relationship that they're in, you know, depending on what's going on, changes how you want to negotiate with them and how you want to talk with them, right? And how you want to gain intelligence from, from them, from their family to be able to talk and, and, and resolve the situation. Because not, not everything is the same, not even close. No two negotiations are the same. So I can imagine, again, some from the outside look, looking in, people might look at this as being very disingenuous. Like you're just playing this game and that's why we can't trust you as police officers. What do you, what do you say to that? Well, I, I can tell you, especially from the hostage negotiation side, if I didn't want to do it and it was just a game and it wasn't genuine to me, I wouldn't be in that position. And all the people that are on my team are in the same way. We're in it because we pour our hearts into it. And we mm. care. We want to resolve these things because it's not just the person that we're negotiating with or talking with. They've got family that's going to be affected by this. They've got friends. They've got coworkers. This incident is going to affect a lot of people. <clears throat> and we genuinely want a good resolution out of that. We don't want to have to use force. We want to talk to people, have them come to a level-headed place to make a good decision, you know? Right, which impacts, again, all those things and all those people in, in a different kind of way. Uh, I mean, we just, you just said it. I mean, it doesn't happen very, it's not, it's not very common. It doesn't happen a lot at a high frequency. Maybe we use that term. It's not a high frequency type of thing that you deal with. But um, can you talk, are, are you still involved with this? Can you talk about any of the incidents that you might have had that really touched you, really moved you, where you've had like success or maybe even just were not successful? Yeah, uh, I think we've had um, a lot of great success since the time that I've been on the team. Um, a lot of the stuff has been uh, suicidal people for the most part, you know, at, at their wits end, wanting to commit suicide, leave kids behind, those sorts of things. Like, um, with, a, with, a, like with a gun <laughs> in their mouth kind of thing or in their hand or knife or something else? Yeah. Okay. Yep. So they're like barricaded in their house or apartment or whatever it happens to be. We've had people up on top of hotels wanting to jump off, you know, the, you know, people driving around in cars that are going to, you know, commit suicide by driving into traffic. So they like or, they call 911 and go, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. Sure. Yeah. And so you've got dispatch that then transfers that to you while this person's driving around. Yep. How's that work, man? It's tricky. It's tricky for sure. Like, you know, so you got to, do these people readily disclose where they are? No. Right. No, no. How do you, how, how well, I mean, you get to the point where, you know, you call them, right? And and what do you say when you call them? Hey, this is the police. Right. And what do they do? <laughs> they hang the they phone hang up. The phone up, right? And so that's that's your starting point. You you can't even have a conversation yet because they're not even ready to talk. But it seems like they are kind of where they wouldn't have called nine one one in the first place. Yeah, generally so that's, that's the like they've left you a little bit of wiggle room. You just, just got to you got to right? figure out your way in. Yeah. So I will say that um, we have had some some pretty good successes. Uh, there were times before I came on the team and before I became a, uh, an officer that um, there were some pretty unfortunate circumstances where our negotiators were out talking to people that committed suicide right in front of them. Wow. You know, they, they, they were done. And, um, you know, those are hard, obviously, if, you, if you're that person in that position, right? You've been talking with them for hours. You're pouring your heart and soul into wanting them to, to do the right thing, to get them some help. And then the next thing you know, they... they decide differently. So, you know, it, it's, it's not an easy uh, thing to do. Um, 
you know, you're, you're giving a lot emotionally. You, you take a psychological hit from, from those interactions, but you know, they're, you kind of hang your hat on the ones that end well that are rewarding. I guess that you have to, man. I mean, you have to, but I would imagine there's things that get learned in the process too. As unfortunate, as tragic as the situation is, there's going to be some things that can be taken away from that to then pass down. Um, you're not going to win them all, right. uh, but d- despite trying, you, you're, you're going to learn some things. Any, any, uh, any ones that really stand out for you that were like, dude, man, we made this happen and this one will live as like the career so far, like the career uh, negotiation to, to date that you can talk about? Man, none, none of the uh, negotiations are really, really hitting me on that. I know what you're getting at. Is that where, has there really... been that, like that many? Or <laughs> I, the other way to look at this too is again, you go away to the school and you come back, like, Every day is a negotiation, right? Oh yeah. Every time you go out, it's like how how do we get this this resolved? Whether it's a traffic ticket or, you know, maybe something else. I would imagine like there's this every day's negotiation. So your skills are, are getting better. So there's probably a lot of stuff that got de-escalated or resolved without you even really being aware because you were just using your new skill set. Oh yeah, absolutely. I just yeah, I just wondered if there's like um you know. <laughs> Again, guy on top of building wants to jump off. We spend five hours. We finally get him to come down. He's now, you know, gone through recovery or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we, we had like one everybody wants to hear those stories, no, Chris. I, you, know? I, you know, I got you. <laughs> we had one a few years ago. This guy, um, high out of his mind, had a pretty nasty history. He uh, had actually, uh, several years prior to this, had actually shot a San Jose police officer. That officer thankfully lived through that shooting. Okay. Uh, but this guy, career criminal, bad dude. He does a home invasion robbery in our city. Um, he, they, the people are obviously calling 911. He's breaking into our house. He takes off running mm-hmm. and he finds a hotel that's under construction that's probably between a quarter mile, half mile away. And he works his way all the way up to the roof. And uh, somehow the officers figure out that he's up there. So I, I'm actually off that day. I'm not even working right now. And so the officers that are first on scene are trying to communicate with him. Well, he's eight, eight stories up in the air and he's 10 shades of pissed off and there's construction tools and equipment and everything up there. And he decides it's a great idea. I'm just going to start throwing start stuff, cops, stuff off, right? throwing hammers, the awesome. cars and right. Having, having himself a fun day. So that turns into a full blown call out for us. So I come in from home uh, with the rest of my team and we start trying to communicate with him. Uh, they end up using a drone uh, and flying a cell phone up to the top. Cause like I said, it was probably like eight stories up. Right? Wait, wait, I like, okay, hold on. Let's talk about this. So you guys got tools like drones and stuff. I never even thought about this either. I mean, the different types of technology that are available to you. This is fascinating. Flying a cell phone up top. Cause back in the day, I mean, I watched all the cop shows when I was a kid, they had the bag phone, right. And they'd throw it into the, into the room or whatever else, or miraculously in the movies, they always have the guy, bad guy's phone number. The bad guy always has the direct line to, you know, Al Pacino, who's the negotiator outside, right? Like, that's not, yeah. that's not the reality. We fly drone, we drone flight in cell phones. Okay, sorry. I, uh, I got to get say, my head around that. Uh, it, it was a first for us, too. I don't think we'd ever had to, to deploy a phone that way before. Wow. Okay. All right. So, guy gets phone. Guy gets phone. I mean, the alternative was we had a, a patrol car on the ground. We're trying to use the PA speaker. Mm. And then, you you know, how can you hear that? He, he can't hear him. He can't, yeah. Right. So, yeah, so they, they use a drone, they get a cell phone up to him. So now we can at least talk. So uh, a couple of the guys get on the phone, they start negotiating with him. And like I said, he he's just high out of his mind. And so how do you really negotiate mm-hmm. with somebody like that? I mean, we've all been at, you know, at the bar with our drunk friends. You can't even negotiate yeah. with people you know, right? <laughs> yeah. So It's time to go, man. So this is hours long. And um, 
he, you know, he wants cigarettes and he wants food and he wants all this stuff. Right. And, uh, so they, they start trying to get him some things, but we at the same time are working our way up the building and we're at the roof hatch right below where he's at. And it starts getting to a point where obviously the, the negotiation over the phone is not working, but you're stalling, we're stalling. We're trying to get him to do the right thing, but he's not wanting to. So eventually we got to go up there, you know, eventually something's got to, got to come to, to a resolution. Push is going to come to shove. Yeah. Right. And the, the fear of going up there is like you said, push comes to shove, right? Nobody wants to get into a fight on a roof and get thrown off of a roof. There's power tools and shit up there. Yeah. It's not the best of environments, but so we take a team up there. Um, he ends up, when we get up there, he ends up uh, getting rid of the cell phone that with the negotiator he had been talking to for hours, which really kind of didn't, didn't bode too well with us because now we're having to create a whole new rapport with him and he doesn't know who we Starting are. Starting over. Right. But now he's afraid because there's, you know, eight or 10 cops up on the roof that are challenging him. So now, you know, does he want to talk now? So, so that we had to build that back up. We had to, you know, uh, I've never had to uh, throw a burrito at somebody to try to get them to, to want to talk with me, you know, they were throwing, you know, the guy to, wants food. So you can have the food, but right. no, I'm new to have your food. You got to talk to me. Yeah. To come, it. come closer, come closer. So Lord. Yeah. So this, I mean, this went on for hours. He's threatening to jump, you know, we're worried about, you know, getting into a physical altercation with him a little bit on top of the roof. Cause none of us want to end up falling off, you know, but ultimately, ultimately we had a good resolution. We didn't have to use any kind of force with him. Uh, it, it took me, talking him into a burrito and giving him wow. uh, a pack of cigarettes that only had three cigarettes in it. I said, you can smoke these three and then it's time to be done and go down. Wow. And it, it worked itself out. He ended up giving up to us, let us put him in handcuffs. We didn't have to fight with him. We didn't have to use any force and it, it resolved itself. But that took a massive amount of resources, took a lot of cops, took a lot of hours. And, you know, I, I would say that in the end, hundred percent worth it. No one got hurt. No one, no one died, you know, that that's a win. And that's what we always look for. Yeah. I mean, you said resolved itself. I don't know if it resolved itself. I mean, you guys put a lot of effort into it. That, the, that resolution, it was, sounds like it, again, you just mentioned resources and time and all those things. Meanwhile, there's all, plenty of other things happening out on the street that probably could have been intended to. And I don't want to take away from this that you came in on your day off. I mean, it's part of your job, right? But you're, I assume you're sitting at home with the family and you get the call. Hey dude, get, start rolling. We, we have this thing going on. So that, that's, that's, um, you know, I look at the kind of life and, you know, things like this is like deposits and withdrawals, deposits and withdrawals. And, you know, you, you can, if you keep withdrawing more than you deposit, the obvious, (laughs) the obvious comes out of that. Ultimately you're going to be overdrawn. And there are things that banks and, you know, credit card companies and things have put in place, you know, for protection mechanisms, like, okay, well, we're going to tack this fee on, we're going to tack this fee on. But in the game of life, uh, those fees, uh, those overdrawn type of uh, penalties manifest in a lot of different, a lot of different ways. Um, and all of this time, like we, I'm sure you weren't the only officer that had to come in off, off duty to, to come do that. So you're, you're, you're doing this, this, this extra work, so to speak. Then, all right, it, so after hours and hours and hours of this, then what happens? You just go, okay, we're done. You go, you drive, you drive home. That's yeah. it. Then back to work the next day. Yeah. Somebody else is handling the paperwork, whatever. It's okay. We went through this. Uh, okay. So I learned that in some cases, if I throw burritos and three cigarettes at somebody, <laughs> this might work. But after that, like, was there any kind of like a after action, like get together, debrief, 
um, with how that whole situation went down? Or was that just like, okay, well, we did what we were supposed to do. Now we're moving on to the next thing. We'll wait for the next call. Oh, no, we, we definitely debrief every situation. Okay, talk about that. Yeah, talk about how that process looks for you. We, we get together as a team and we talk about, I mean, from the very beginning to when the, the incident kicked off, who was here? Can you talk about everything? You know, the, the call out, everybody getting on scene, everybody establishing what role they're going to be in, what their responsibilities are. We, we break all that down. How did that work out? That worked yeah. out good. Everybody mm-hmm. comfortable in that? You know, uh, who did the negotiating? How did you feel? What, what, what are things that we can learn from? Uh, who set up all of our technology, you know, the, the various equipment that we use? How, how did that go? Did everything work? Did it not work? Is there stuff we need to get fixed? Did we learn from this, you know, putting a cell phone on a, on a, mm-hmm. uh, a drone? We'd never done that before. No, probably, I don't think we'd ever even up to that point thought of it. Yeah, I'm so, so fascinated by that. So that's something new, right? right. So that gave us some, some new ideas to, to think about, to talk about, you know, and we, you know, we, we go from, from the beginning to the end, we, uh, it all gets written in a, in a document for us so that we can always remember. Mm-hmm. And it, it also feeds into like, what are our needs? You know, what are our, what equipment do we need coming up that will help us do better in the future? So I have a question here, if I could just time out for a second. So the people that are involved in this debrief, are these basically the people that were on the ground there at the incident, like the team, like, and what I'm, I, what I'm asking, let me, what I'm really asking is, are there people from outside? And so I'm going to, I'm going to tangent here for a second and go, usually when we hear about this stuff, we only hear about it when the bad shit's gone down, when there's been an OIS or somebody has, has, has died. Right. And there, and it's been blown up and now other people are involved. We have uh, like a third party investigation that's happening, or we have like city council that's getting involved, or there's some representative third party representative that's involved in these meetings. But it seems we only ever hear about those people being involved in the meetings when the shit's gone bad. Do, do they get involved? Are there other people involved in this to help document like, well, this is what's normal, right? This is a, then this is a good outcome. Or do they only walk in when there's a, well, let's just say more of a tragic outcome. Yeah, I mean the 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 big muckety mucks, if you will, your your city council, your mayor, they want all the details. Then, right? They're only coming in for kind of the bigger things, the stuff that's going to be, you know, politically heavy for them to have to deal with in the aftermath. Uh, So, officer involved shootings, high high priority or high profile cases, those sorts of things. So, I just I get here's my thing, like. If you only want to get involved when it comes down to that stuff, but you have no litmus for all the other things that have happened to then reflect on to go like, well, what is normal procedure? What do they typically do? What has been my experience with this officer or this team or this department or whatever in this particular realm of stuff? Hostage negotiation. This one ended well. The next one didn't. And now I'm here. Why am I here? You're here because you have an agenda and that's to cover your ass or to paint the picture in a way that maybe covers some other people's asses, but somewhere down the line, the reason you're here is because you're feeling heat finally. Would you maybe be feeling less heat or maybe would you be in a position to, to deal with that heat a little bit differently had you had more uh, knowledge and experience with the teams that are dealing with this on a regular basis is I guess my, is I guess my question. So I don't know what's your take on no, that. I'm, uh, you're hundred percent right. They, they only get involved when it's, going to matter to them, right? When, when they have a dog in the fight and unfortunately, you know, the, those, those high up positions, they rotate quite often. Right. And so these people aren't out and 
uh, a lot of times when you have a big incident like this, you're reinventing the wheel. You're having to tell these high profile people what these little teams do, why it's so important, how they normally operate. You're having to give them this whole back history yeah, just so that they can have some kind of an understanding so that now they can formulate their response and their involvement in this. So it's interesting. I think there may be people that can relate to this outside of law enforcement. I, I think this is true in some cases in the military too, from things that I've heard based on people that have learned or were involved in uh, maybe conflicts or were, were trained in a way that was pre maybe the last 20 years. And so that was great for them what, in whatever conflict or whatever situation they were in, but things change. And this old way of training, this old way of thinking, we need to change because this isn't good and it's not productive or whatnot. I was once um, in a position in a business where a, a new leadership team came in uh, and that new leadership team ended up bringing some leaders from the outside in. And there were, there were, I was on a team, it was a bunch of, there, and there were, the people that I worked with were highly skilled experts. And what I found was the guy that they brought in to basically be our boss was incompetent in many ways. Um, and I'll say it publicly. Uh, I, I don't really care. I, I thought what they did was they ended up ruining the business because what they had this guy doing was basically having us to have to teach him his job while at the same time him holding a, us accountable for things on the day-to-day um, within our own job that he didn't understand what we were doing. And so what we spent more time doing was filing reports and sending information back rather than being in the field doing what we need to do. And, and, and basically it completely destroyed the business that we were working for and the trust that we had and the relationships that we had. And I was the first guy in the, at the round table to always stick my hand up and go, dude, you're wrong. And that didn't play well. And ultimately I, I made the decision for myself. Like I can't stay here anymore, but that that's, Almost like I can, I can relate because I was like, who is this fucking idiot? Like you're coming in, you're coming in here because you're feeling heat from the high ups because performance isn't, isn't where it's supposed to be. But part of the reason the performance isn't where it's supposed to be is because you are running interference on that performance or you're not, you're not giving us what we're asking you or telling you or asking you for as needs for the people that are in the field that are doing this or doing that. And I guess that's where I'm getting at with this is unless when they start feeling heat, it starts to trickle downhill. Um, but what are you doing in the meantime to learn about the the process? And I don't want to beat it up anymore, but um, I think what I'm hearing and kind of what I'm learning is, is there's a huge disconnect, massive disconnect with policymakers with regard to what the realities of those people that have to do the job on a daily basis are. Let's go back now. So moving away from that incident, how, how in the last two years have things changed? Two to three years have things changed for you as an officer in the in the in the way you handle yourself, the way you handle the team around you, as compared to previously with basically the oversight that's coming in and the the responsibility and that you have to have now versus then. I don't know if I'm formulating that question, yeah, right, no, but I, I think you know I, what I I'm get, getting at. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, kind of a little bit on your on your last topic of. We, we have a lot of managers and a lot of management, yep. a lot of administrators, but we lack leadership and we yearn for leadership. Right. And when you have such high turnover or when you have people that are very politically motivated that haven't done your job or haven't done your job for 20 years, what, what do they know about it? And how are they going to protect you? They're not. And, and if you're that guy like you are, because that's generally me of saying, hey, you're wrong and this is wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, you're ostracized. Yeah, right? exactly. Now, you can kiss whatever promotions and all those things you want goodbye, right? Yep. But 
we, we need leadership now more than we ever have by far in this post George Floyd era. I think that you have uh, the entire first responder community under such scrutiny right now that people are leaving in droves. There's a staffing crisis anywhere you look at it. And the few people that you have left that you're retaining, you're not taking care of. You're, you're throwing them out to the wolves sometimes because you're not being a leader. And those people that are still left that are still working their butts off are burning the candle at both ends. Mm-hmm. And so they're giving you 110% all they've got. And what are they getting in return from that? Well, they're not getting an internal administration that is supporting them with leadership that cares about them. There's this uh, great saying a friend of mine said, uh, here at this, you know, whatever agency, here at our agency, family matters, just not yours. Wow. Right. So you have an administration that's not taking care of you. You have a bigger uh, administration, say a city, a county, whatever, you know, those, those politicians, they don't care about you. The district attorney's not, not doing their part. They're not holding up their end of the bargain. Which would be what? You have, uh, over the last couple of years, we went to no bail, you know, <laughs> since, since I'm, George Floyd was. I'm acutely aware of this one. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, so no bail. So people you get, you're going to get arrested. Stuff that you would have. You stealing know, a I, car. When I, when I first became a cop, if you got caught stealing a car, you were probably getting at least a year in jail. Right. I mean, that was probably a, the, the, the least hand slapping you could get. Well, since George Floyd, what do we do now with people that steal cars? Get your ticket book out. We're going we're gonna to take that car and we're going to give you a ticket and you're on your way. Hey, don't forget to go to court, man. Right. Don't forget to show up. And then uh, when you do have a warrant, the warrant is going to be for a dollar. So, so you don't have to, you don't, don't, don't even to. show up. Don't even show up. To Why court? bother? Yeah. So you, you're free to go out and commit tons and tons more crime with no consequence. And it only emboldens criminals to do that. And then in this society where cops are demonized and are expected to perform without a fault hundred percent of the time. And when we don't, we're, we're demonized for our actions and we're considered terrible people. What, what are we supposed to do? You want us to arrest that guy for the 20th time when, when the, the prosecutors haven't done their job to keep him in jail. We're, we're really having to weigh out that, that personal liability. So I want to talk, I want to pause for a second and talk about this a little bit. I, I think you just painted a really clear picture. I mean, we see it. I think we're learning that in spades as a society right now, particularly here. I mean, I, I can speak, for my neighborhood um, and the things that I've witnessed and encountered just here. But again, I, I have a lot of friends that work in a lot of different places and they're saying, look, dude, it's no different anywhere else, man. You, you've got your stuff. Everybody's got their own stuff. Yeah. But I want to talk about, so going back, the question was, is like, what was it like two years ago, three years ago versus how it is now? You just mentioned like, if my car got stolen, like if my car got stolen out front right now and a guy got a ticket, I would lose my mind. I'd literally lose my mind. And, to a certain extent, I am angry about this uh, because I see the aftermath of it right here in front of my right here in front of my my business. I live a couple of blocks from here. Like it shows up. Um, going back to the Nobel, uh, a very close acquaintance of mine who owns a very a local business here is also part owner of one of the biggest bail bonds companies down here in the South Bay area. And I asked him the other day. I it was about a week and a half ago. It was actually the beginning, I think, of this month, and we're now in the month of September. I said, "Dude, how's a uh, how's how's the business? Cause he was like, it was really wacky there for a long time. He goes, well, they finally started putting pe- people back in jail. The no bail thing went away. So hopefully business will pick up for us. That's the other end of this. Um, that's kind of how I was, I was testing this, but here's, uh, here's, I guess the, the, the question I have, 
going back because now you can relate. You've been that veteran officer on the on the street, you know, ten plus years, and you were handling yourself as a law enforcement officer in a certain way, trying to keep your nose clean, making sure you're doing the right things, helping people, going into service, but also uh, making sure that you know people that stole my car, you were going to catch them and you were going to put them in jail, and they were going to at least have to go through the process of you know of what that type of a uh, behavior would would put them through. How's it different now? How, how do officers, I'm not saying you specifically, but how are officers like in your position now approaching the street on a daily basis as, a, as opposed to where they were knowing what you just said? Uh, you know, it goes back to what we were saying about, you know, there's, there's no one supporting you. You're burning the candle at both ends and there's no one that has your back that will stand up at the end of the day and say, my guys are doing the right thing. But is that so, true? I think that would be the question. Like, is that really true? Come on. Like, really? You know, it, I, I don't want to, to give that generalized. It, it 100% it's true. Yeah. I, it depends on where you are. It depends on where you're politically, where you're located mm-hmm. in the Bay Area here. The politics are very different than what they would be in Northern California. It's interesting, right? isn't it? <laughs> and so that really plays a, a factor into it. So I'll give you the, the perspective of a Bay, Bay Area police officer, uh, kind of a wide perspective of it is what has changed for us is if no one is going to support you, and no one is going to have your back. You got to look out for yourself and you got to look out for your brother. And I've, I've got to look out for my own personal liability is what I'm about to do worth me getting sued, hurt, or put in jail. It, is it worth it is getting in a pursuit with that stolen car to get someone their car back. That's what I want. I want to get them their car back and I want to put that guy in jail. But if this goes bad and this doesn't meet the headline test and say something happens at we get in a pursuit and that guy hits a family and kills a family. It's some God awful event, right. Mm -hmm. That we never intended, but we were dying to do our job. Right. Is it worth what we're going to go through? And that's, and that's really where we're at now is if, if our politicians don't care, if our district attorneys don't care, if all these people don't care enough, then does it need to get bad enough for the people to stand up and say, we've had enough. We need change. You know, we, we need to, stop these problems and you need to stop demonizing cops for doing their job. Yeah, it's like a decriminalization of the crime and the criminals and a demonization of, of law enforcement. And there are responsibilities on both sides of that. 100%. Right. Uh, there are responsibilities on both sides. You, you're going to have, in, in some cases, you're going to have some, some officers that are not doing a good job. And that's, it's going to be in any, in anything that any you do, profession. any profession, you're going to have people that are not doing a good job. Yeah. But to, to come out and say the majority of people or majority of officers are that officer, I think is a very, very, uh, it's, that's exaggerated. That just isn't the case. Um, and what's happening on the street is showing us that you're, you're just seeing in some cases the bad ones or you're being, this one's being portrayed as a bad one based on how they've sliced and diced the media or gone ahead and put it in the headline or, or whatever else. And you'll never hear about it again when that officer ends up being cleared a year later, two years later or whatever, because at that point that person's already the devil. Um, and, uh, you know, and again, on the other side, like the, for the person that says, well, yeah, you shouldn't be chasing that, that stolen car at, at a high speed because yes, you could kill a family, but what is the result of, of, of not doing it over time? And I think the consequence of that is what we're seeing now, which is to, to your point, like one officers are like, eh, I don't know. I don't know if that's important enough. Is that how you want to, because what if that stolen car has a, also a 
stolen child in it, you know, or is, is connected to something that could expose something much, much bigger. And your child is part of that or whatever the case. Again, it's like this huge, uh, this huge mess. And there's a menagerie of people out there. I, and it, it just fries me when I look at it that don't have any clue uh, of, of what, what you guys are going through on a, on a daily basis. And, and I don't, and here's the other thing. I don't hear people griping about it. I mean, I don't hear officers. They don't come to me and just say, my fucking job sucks. I hate it and whatever else. But when I talk to the guys that I do know, and I know that they're not talking about their job anymore or even having a conversation with me about it, I, I get it. I, I totally get it. Man, I, I, I talk about maybe the car chase is a thing. Right. Like, uh, I think a lot of people like to use that when the car chase is a thing, but what are some of the other like stuff, the stuff on a daily basis that you're having to, for lack of a better term, hesitate on, uh, that's different now versus where it was before. Just, just some of the, the stuff that you would deal with maybe multiple times a day. Like how is that dealt with different now than it was? Well, I think you can look at, um, kind of in industry wide right now. I think you can look at proactivity levels of officers. A long time ago, when, when cops weren't responding to calls, if there weren't calls holding, you were out looking for something. You're hunting to do, for right? stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's why we all got into this job. I think that has dramatically decreased um, because of where we're at, because of the things that have happened. Because I think there's uh, an argument that when someone calls 911 for help and you have someone on the phone saying, this just happened to me, this is the guy that did it. Mm-hmm. I think there's an argument that it is our job to go out there and get that guy. And I think that you have a lot more backing you on, on an in-progress 911 call than you do if you were to just go stop Joe Schmo on an arbitrary oh, I got you. proactive stop. I right? got you. There was a call for service, right? It, it, it's been documented. It went through dispatch. So the reason you're there is because you were told to be there right. versus your judgments being questioned from the very, very get go on why would you even approach this person or this situation in the first why, place? Why are you messing with that guy? Guys what is your parked reason? on the side of the road, right? Like he's in an, it's in a dark alley. It's three in the morning. Okay. And, I, and I, I everything you. comes into question, right? I mean, anything conceivable comes out, right? Well, why were you the officer even there? targeted that guy because of his race? Yeah. Well, it's in a dark alley in the middle of the night. I can't see I, that. I could see the outline of like, you know, someone's head through a window, but, I had no idea what race he was, but that's not what the media is going to say. Right. Right. And so you're not going to get that backing on a proactive stop of going out and hunting, trying to find that stuff. It, you're just not. So as a result, we're I, waiting for calls. I, I think a lot of agencies have, have gotten that to that point. We're waiting for calls a lot more than we are being proactive. And not to say the cops aren't proactive anymore at all. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I, I, don't, I, I think you. People are just using much more conservative decision-making and judgments on what they're going to do in a proactive call rather than just going out and lighting the world on fire, trying to, trying to solve crime, you know? Well, how's that working out for us, Chris? I mean, what are we, what's the consequence of this out on the street right now? I think we're seeing it every day. Uh, we're, and that's in a combination of a lot of the new laws that have gone into place in the last 10 years. I mean, decriminalizing drugs and look at the consequence that that has had for our homeless population. It's exploding. Yeah, and I, what are we doing to take care of, of of all these these people? Right, we've we've amended the laws that have put these people in a lot of the places that they're in, and they don't want the cops to arrest their way out of that problem. They're homeless; they don't deserve to be in jail, is what we get told, you know. And so our our society, your your quality of life. You you want to walk your kids to school in San Francisco? 
you got to walk through a homeless encampment to get there. Right. You're stepping over feces and you're stepping over drugs. And yeah, this goes back to the policies and the politicians. I mean, the pendulum ends up swinging so far one way, it has to come back. And we're on that other back end. So we were arresting people for, you know, whatever, 10 years ago. Um, you know, you have an ounce of fucking weed and you're, in, you're going to jail and for years. Like, and if that's not your first offense, if it's your second or third offense, you're getting put away for a long time. That was the extreme over there. Now we're back all the way on the other end where it, it basically carrying any amount is not a problem unless you got a trunk full of it, maybe. But it, again, it's been decriminalized. Usually what you see is, again, there has to be the swing back. When At what point does it need to get to, maybe in your experience, where it kind of starts to swing back the other way? I mean, you mentioned the people standing up and going, like, we've had enough. Like, how does that happen when? To be honest with you, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, this is the first time in my career I've been a cop 13 years. This is the first time that I've seen this pendulum swing so far and, and almost get stuck where it's at. But I can say if you, if you follow the news and you look and you see the, the bad district attorneys that we've had, Gavin Newsom, or um, I'm sorry, not Chase Boudin. Oh, we can talk about him if you want. I love that, that topic, uh, but we can stay away. My, my <laughs> blood pressure might go up a little bit, but, but I mean, look, look at the people of San Francisco became fed up enough to recall him. Or, so is that showing the pendulum is starting to swing back? Maybe. Yeah, I hope so. I don't, I don't know. I don't think any of us have an answer. I know for it's it. all speculation. So, yeah, I got you. Can I, can I hope and pray that we are starting to swing back in the right direction? I sure hope so. Because my family is part of this community. My friends are part of this community. They've all been victimized in, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, wasn't too long ago. My grandparents called me in, you know, five o'clock in the morning, their catalytic converter got stolen. Wow. I mean, it's yeah. just your, you know, it, it's a run of the mill property crime, right? It's not something that's the biggest of deals, but it, does it impact my grandparents? Yeah. Because the car they stole it off of is the car that they have to tow behind their motor home to go on their trips. And they were supposed to go on a trip that week and they couldn't go. Right? right. So, so no one's immune to it. And it's sad when we see it affecting the people that we know and love and, and we want nothing more than for it to swing back to be in a happy medium, you know? So what are, what are things like, again, like things that you're seeing out there as far as the, the pendulum swinging and it being all the way, let's just say, to the left right now, like it's being decriminalized. <laughs> but now you're, you're going out on the street every day. What, what are you seeing on the streets? I mean, you just mentioned like your grandparents, um, and that sucks. And people say, okay, so they were mildly inconvenienced. They just call their insurance company. It gets fixed and whatever. But that attitude is probably, a, it's a bigger part of the problem is what you're saying. It's like, oh, it's not my problem until it becomes your problem. And then when they call 911, they expect you to fight show up right away. But I guess that that's kind of what I'm getting at. Like, so what are you seeing on the street? Like right now on the daily that, that, um, in, in, in terms of this, this pendulum going all, you know, all the way to the left side and how it impacts people and their interactions and the decisions they're making and the things that they're doing as Joe citizen out there on the street, not necessarily how they feel about you, right. As a police officer, but what's the attitude on the street now compared to where it was even a couple of years ago? I mean, you mentioned that the criminals just like, <laughs> they're just doing whatever they want, whenever they want. Oh, they, uh, they know there's no recourse to their actions. And, and if it is, it's, it's small, it's minor. They don't care. They get a ticket for stealing a car. Big deal. Right. Right. And a dollar, $1 bail. Like, man, I could just do this every day. Like, and I can still five cars and still only have to pay five bucks. Right. You know, kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it's, what's sad is I think so many people in our community are, are also being desensitized that yeah, they are, as, mm. they're getting to a place where 
this is okay. This is normal. Yeah. You know, we had a, that's what I was asking at our, our local library got overrun with homeless people. And to me, the library is a place where you take children to learn where (laughs) it should be a safe environment. And when it's okay for people that, that say, well, it's okay. We're used to it now. They, you know, they're giving them resources and they're doing these things. Well, at what point is it not okay anymore? At what point have we affected society so much that things need to change but but we're almost brainwashing or people are almost becoming brainwashed to think that this level of crime and this level of um uh you know societal issues I'm trying to trying to think of the right words for it, it is acceptable it's it's okay now where it was never okay before and i i don't know where we go from there i don't know how that all gets fixed and that gets changed um it'll never be okay for me. I'm not going to send my kid into that library. You know, it's, it's dangerous. I know it's dangerous, but you know, but I, then I get, I get told that, you know, it's, it's because of my viewpoint as a cop. Right. But at, at what point is society going to say, all right, all right, enough's enough. We need to get back to some normalcy. Yeah. You use the, use the term, we use a couple of terms here, desensitized at one point and you just kind of said, you know, maybe it's, maybe it isn't, but maybe it is brainwashed. I think it's, we're saying the same thing that there's been a filtration or a scrubbing of, uh, you know, what people see as acceptable or not acceptable. And again, the more you see it, the more acceptable it likely becomes. And what again that trickles down or it gets amplified when you start working in or walking into people that are working maybe in the first responder community because they're seeing more and more and more of it all the time um, but they're having to deal with it versus ah, well I don't send my kids to the library anymore so why should I care you know like it, that, that's not my problem that's that's somebody else's problem and yeah it sucks but I don't care enough to say anything or do anything or influence it's not going to influence how I vote or whatever like that's just it is what it is that's just the world we live in now so we have yeah. to, we have to get used to it. So what does that do? I, you know, again, so now coming back to, to the officer side of things and walking into things, you have your viewpoint. Uh, you have these calls that you, that you're going out on and you have to think through the personal liability and how is this going to impact things differently than it, than it did before. What does that do to the psyche? What does that do to the emotional state? Um, the stress level, and again, that's broad. Stress is a broad term, um, but it really isn't. Um, but how, 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 do officers de- how, how do officers deal with that? How are you dealing with that now? I can say that in, um, in, in my 13 years, it has changed a lot. Um, when I was new, I was gung-ho. I was that, that excited officer to be out there. And we would go through critical incidents and it would bug me a little bit, but then I would kind of move on, right? But in the the 13 years to where I've gotten to now, you know, which isn't that, you know, it's half of a, half of a career. Uh, if you make it through an entire, entire career, True. there's a lot of reasons anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's not necessarily one incident that really starts setting you off. It's, it's the totality of them. It's the ongoing trauma that you have to deal with every day. Mm-hmm. And it unfortunately is what, that makes you become and how that affects you as a human, right? When we all got, when I got into this job with my friends, I'll say we all, um, you know, roughly around the same age, had a lot of the same hobbies and interests before we got into this. If you were to ask any of us, do you guys still do those same things? No, no, we don't. Do you guys, you know, still have the same friends? 
No, not a lot of them. You know, it, it changes you as a person a lot. Sometimes it's for the best or, or you know, for the good. A lot of times the, the changes um, are, are negative and it doesn't just affect you. It affects your family. When you go home to your family, your kids, your spouse, mm-hmm. your extended family, it affects your friends, you know, uh, you know, some of the stuff that we've talked about so far today, these aren't conversations I could have with all of my friends mm-hmm. because they have very different views. And there's a lot, of risk. There's a lot of risk there, right? Yeah. And sometimes you, you risk ruining a, a friendship or a relationship because you, you start getting into these conversations and, you know, you have very different viewpoints and it can really spark some fires. And, and that, that messes with you too. You know, these people that you've loved and have been friends with for so long, it's hard not to feel like how, how could you take their side and not take my side? I'm mm-hmm. the one that, that gives the blood, sweat and tears every day. Right. But that seems valid, man. It, it's a, it's one of those things, the long-term effects of being a first responder, it really starts to, to wear on you over time. You know, your cup can only get so full before it overflows. And, you know, they hire us because we're very type A people. We're strong people. We're strong physically. We're strong emotionally, right? We can compartmentalize a lot of these things. But at some point, you've built up so much over the years that if you haven't done a good job to deal with it, you're really setting yourself up for failure. It's a blessing and a curse, right? Being able to, to organize things that way. Yeah. Um, yeah, I would also imagine, so 13 years in, let's just say t- for the first 10 years, you deal with those things, you file those things a little bit differently, right? And there's there's cumulative stuff and I'm sure we haven't really gotten into to any of that, but I'm sure there's things and incidences along the way. You mentioned the one, the one, one that ended positively, a guy on roof, but those things, again, they fill your cup or your bucket or your backpack, whatever analogy we're using, your box of, of stuff. And then the whole George Floyd incident happens, right? And now there's that much more scrutiny. There's that much more. Does that just, does that just take room out of the box or does that just fill the box up even more? Um, and does it then escalate or amplify the things that happen um, after is, I don't know if that's a clear question or not, like in terms of like what this incident before, <coughs> let's just say maybe we put in like a number on it. So this incident before on a scale of one to five would have been a two for me from a stress impact perspective, you know, so that goes into the two section in my box. Right. Um, and as the number go up in terms of stress, you have, you know, you take up more and more like, you know, there's yeah. more volume being taken up. So it goes yeah. into a two versus now what was a two before does that now equate to like a a four or even a five because of this cumulative, uh, the cumulative impact of everything, but also like, does, is it now amplify? There's like an X factor on top of it over these last couple of years with the things that you've just sort of articulated. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, it used to be, you would think of the stress of just being during that incident, Mm -hmm. you know, and that the average person would think, well, you made it through that incident. The stress is over. You Mm -hmm. can, you can go back to a baseline. And I, I got to tell you, that is the 100% the exact opposite of what happens to us. You go through a critical incident, a lot of times the stress that you go through during that physical incident is going to be a lot less than the stress that you're going to feel in the aftermath. You mean from a psychological and emotional perspective? And, and even a physiological perspective. Right. Absolutely. Right. There's a lot of things. We've talked about some of those things on the show before, but, you know, like the I, the, the example of... Um, again, the box and, and, and filling the box up. I guess when I, when I look at that, 
you, you, you learn tools, you have skills to, to kind of deal with those things. But as you, these critical moments happen in life, right? And, and when you're working the line of work that you're in, um, those, those are much more, much more frequent intensity levels are way different. But I look at like, again, like everything that's happened in the last few years, sociopolitically, the cold COVID-19 thing, the whole world got exposed to a certain amount of stress in a certain amount of time. And what I've recognized and what I've learned is people just don't have the bandwidth to handle conversations like you were talking about. So there's all this cumulative stuff that's there. They haven't been able to deal with it, right? They don't really have the right outlets. They're getting these inputs from all these different places that might not be healthy. They're engaged in behaviors that might not be healthy, which just encourage more of the same type of behavior in, in certain certain cases, getting involved in certain groups on Instagram or whatever might be going on. Um, and I guess I, I think what my point is is, they're feeling like they don't have the bandwidth to deal with this stuff. So they have to take a side. They have to find a camp to get into because now I feel safe or I've got some agency. I feel supported over here. And so if I just stay, stay here, I'm going to be right. I'm going to be okay. And I can avoid all that other stuff. But in law enforcement, you don't get that choice, right? You don't get that choice of avoiding all that stuff. You have to deal with it. You have to face it on head on every day. And so the bandwidth I imagine for, for you're, you're just, you're just dudes, right? You're just, you're just ladies and dudes, just like anybody else at the end of the day that deal with their stuff. Similarly, you might have a little bit more training and a little bit more experience in it, but you also have that much more volume of it in a lot of cases based on the stuff that we're dealing with. Oh man. I, um, in terms of now piling on like a, a very, you know, let's just say like a critical incident to, to that stuff. Uh, the conversations that I've been having with people lately are now it's now it's finally like my box is fucking full. Like it, it, I, this was it. This is the tipping point. And going back to what you were saying before, we're having people leaving in droves that are in the law enforcement community because likely that cumulative stress plus maybe one or more other incidents, which is in the past may have been twos for them or now fives or sixes. They just don't fit in the box, right? Anymore. There's just no more room or driving people out. And we have people coming in that really have no idea uh, about any of this stuff yet or coming from a a much different place. But maybe you could talk about what you're seeing out there. um, And particularly maybe personally with regard to how these incidents are stacking up now versus how they were before. I mean, maybe there's some examples you can share. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think in, in the entirety of, me- of <clears throat> sorry, of my career, I've never seen burnout with first responders like I've seen it in the last couple of years, hands down. People just absolutely burn out and people that had never thought of doing anything other than what they were doing had no plan of doing anything differently up and leave because, because you're right there, their, their box is full. And it's not worth it to them anymore. And it's sad. And I know a lot of this uh, personally. I know a lot of my close friends have dealt with a lot of this stuff uh, very personally. And you're absolutely right that, you know, incidents that are happening today are significantly more difficult to deal with than incidents that have happened in the past. So uh, I'll share a a story with you and uh, give you some of my perspective, what I went through, and then um, talk about some of... um, what my friends have been through in similar types of situations. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, about a year and a half or so ago, uh, we were involved in an officer involved shooting incident. 
Um, on that day, I was uh, just your patrol, run-of-the-mill patrol canine. And I got asked by our plainclothes task force uh, to come out and give them a hand. They were trying to apprehend a known criminal. Uh, they knew this dude had a very long, bad history. Um, he had recently been seen with guns. Uh, Highway Patrol had recently contacted him. He had a gun on him. He took off in a pursuit. We knew he's a bad dude. Um, and so the idea was we needed to get him. Our gun violence had been through the roof, and we needed to get grab onto this guy so that we could try to start to quell some of this stuff. Um, so uh, our plainclothes guys end up tracking him to a uh, hotel in our city, um, and we set up surveillance on it. We developed a plan. I mean, we had everything accounted for to a T, and we knew where the guy's car was parked. We, we knew that he was inside the hotel. We set up accordingly. Um, when he came out of the hotel, the plan was going to be that I was going to challenge him with my partners. We were in a minivan together. We call it a heavy van. Okay. So we've got, I've got two SWAT operators in the van with me. And then I sit in the back of a, an unmarked minivan. This was a Honda Odyssey. So your, your average soccer mom minivan <laughs> and you got cops. It's not a lot of, not a lot of space in there, especially if everybody's kitted out. Well, yeah. And, and nobody's expecting cops to come flying out of this thing. So, yeah. um, you know, our, our guy comes out and the three of us are Wait, there. Is the dog in there too? Yep. Oh man, yeah, it's a party. Yeah, right. <laughs> so you know, nobody nobody's expecting that, but it, mm-hmm. the element of surprises is, is in our favor on that. Mm-hmm. So, um, dude comes out of the hotel. Uh, we see him come to the door. He's looking around. He probably got tipped off. Cops were there. Uh, he comes out the door. I hop out of the van and I immediately challenge him, and he takes off running. So, the fact that we know he's armed, we know that he he runs, he runs like. All the stuff, we're going to use the dog. Dog's a perfect, less lethal tool. It's going to grab him. So we chase him through the parking lot. He ends up pulling out a gun. Um, he's trying to shoot my dog. He's pointing it at us, trying to shoot it at us. What we didn't know was uh, we believe that at some point when the dog took him down, his gun actually broke. It was not operable at okay, that point so, in time. So wait, he's pulling the trigger, but the gun's malfunctioned. Well, what's funny is we never even found the trigger to the gun. What? Yeah. So we, we speculate, I mean, he, he's a bad dude. He's not going to pull an, a, a fake gun or a non-operating gun on us. That's not who he is. So I don't know. Our guardian angels somehow got us. On yeah, that, nobody's right? carrying a gun that doesn't have a trigger in it. Right. It's as easy as it is to get a gun anyway. If you had a broken gun or didn't yeah. have a trigger, this dude could easily and resource another one. My, my dog's on bite on his arm, ripped him off his feet, got him on the ground. Okay. He's on bite on his arm and my, he's trying to contact shot the dog in the head. And Jesus. the gun's not going off. And so he's punching the dog in the head with the gun and we're yelling at him and he keeps coming out. He's pointing out on us and he's probably just as surprised that his gun's not going off. Right. But we don't know what's going on. So anyway, uh, long and the short of it is um, that ends up being an officer involved shooting uh, to my partners um, fire and hit him. Um, he ends up being uh, deceased on scene right there. We did a timeout. Okay. So we have a dog on bite. Bad guy with gun. Bad guy's trying to shoot the dog. The dog. It's on bite. And there's, a, there's a wrestling match that's going on right yep. now. And then there's officers all around that are watching all this go down. And the, and the guy's pulling the gun. Now he's pointing the gun at you guys. Um, this is all happening very fast. Oh, yeah. How far are the officers from this wrestling match that are going on? <clears throat> so he and when we sent the dog, uh, he actually goes in into a wide open parking lot with no other cars. Okay, and so me and two other guys are on foot running after him, and then everybody else that had set up surveillance uh, is pulling it's cars con- in, converging, kind of converging. Okay, 
So uh, the distances kind of varied. I was probably 20-ish yards by the time I stopped running when I realized that he had a gun. Some of the guys were much closer. Um, But, you know, 10, 15 yards maybe. Uh, But right right up close enough that you're not going to have to aim that hard to hit a you're point shooting a broad target, right? Yeah. yeah. You're, you're almost point shooting at that. But the point. dog doesn't hold still when he's on bite. So they're, they're flopping around in there. What? Especially the more he fought the dog on that one, the dog really committed. Sure. You know, how many, how many bites does your dog have? Uh, that was, uh, man, that was bite number 11. Okay. So this is not your first rodeo. It's no. not the dog's first rodeo. So he's doing his job. You see the gun come out. You see what's going on. What's going through your mind. I mean, and by the way, like, I don't even know what the protocol would be like at this point. Like, are you, the dog's not on the long line or anything. You sent the dog running. So are you committed to also drawing your weapon at this point? So are you aiming at the suspect or basically at the suspect and your dog? You know, that was a a big part of the issue in this whole thing was I, I didn't, uh, the way that we train it, we, the canine operators always have lethal cover and we all have our roles Mm -hmm. and our responsibility. And as far as I was concerned in that moment of time, all I wanted was my dog to come off and create space, space and let my guys do what they get, needed to do. get the work done. Right. And my job is to, to deal with the dog. That's why I'm the handler. That's why I'm there. And I'm the only one that can do it. It's not like if I don't do it, somebody else will pick up that mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was an issue. And, and I had, uh, we all carry our, uh, run our dogs on e-callers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had an e-caller failure that day. If you could ever pick the worst day to have an e-collar failure, I, I found it. Shit. So, so you're trying to you're trying to out the dog. Yep. And you're trying to stim the dog to do this. Now, I'm not completely familiar, but I've been around this enough and use a use an e-collar with my own dog. Like you go into the situation prepared. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, you everybody's checking. Like, hey, are we ready to go? You're hitting the button and you're trying to out him, and he's he's going to work. Yep. Like, and until you tell him to out, and he gets the signal. He's just going to keep going. And, and uh, to backtrack a little bit, that was his second bite of that day. Oh, so he switched on. He was switched on, but 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 it was fine before. It was fine before. Exactly. Exactly. So my dog, I run the e-collar. I probably 25% of what it's capable of. And that's where my dog's comfortable. And during that shooting, as I'm yelling for him to come off and I'm stimming him and he's not coming off, I crank it up to a hundred. Yeah, so that's going to be my next question because this would be the same thing if I don't get recall from my dog at whatever I know that typical setting is or she's really whatever. Yeah. She switched on. Well, we just cranked that thing up. She comes right back. Oh, yeah. Right right back. Yep. And so that's not working. There was no there was no change. There's no no change in behavior. You can tell. I mean, you, you know, you use an e-collar. You can see there. Yeah. They're fur moving. They're getting, they're getting some juice, or they, right? or they give mean, you a little wiggle. Once you, once you crank it up to a certain amount, which is not the idea. The idea is to keep it down below so that they yeah. get just enough to recognize, well, I don't want that level. Right. So I'm going to, I'm going to obey whatever's supposed to be happening here, dude. So you have enough time to, well, is there another button that goes to a hundred? Basically you can go max level if uh, uh, there's oh, a dial. Okay. So you had to go to your dial. So this is all going down. You had to go to your dial, dial it up and you're stimming. He's still not responding. And I'm what's, getting no reaction. What's going through your head, man? I thought for sure I was losing my dog. No, no doubt. I, I thought for sure. I and have to imagine. I, I thought for sure that I was losing the dog when I was watching him trying to contact shot over the head. So this is, yeah. <clears throat> and I, I thought, okay, you know, that's it. Dog, dog's done, right? He's not going to survive a contact shot to that. Mm-hmm. And then when my partners start laying down some fire, yeah, I'm like, there's 
there's no way. I mean, the, the dog's all over this dude. You don't have to miss by much or you get a through and through. Mm-hmm. It's still going to hit. Yeah, the it's dog, still going right? to hit. I mean, I, I it's all sure. bad. Right. There's all kinds of fucked up. Yeah. So, so that was, yeah, that was definitely the worst day to have a malfunctioning piece of equipment. Right. So you got an equipment, you got a bad guy with a gun, but fortunately he had a bad day with the malfunction as well. Um, man, moon, sun and stars there. Uh, all right. So the guy takes a couple shots from a couple of the other officers ultimately does not make it. Yeah. Uh, does not survive those. Uh, and you, you got to go get the dog off bite. So you, and yeah. so we end up, uh, we get a team together. I, I, I tell my supervisors, thankfully two supervisors that are on scene are former canine handlers. So, Oh wow. So it, it worked out real well. I said, Hey, he's not coming back. We got to go get him. And you can hear in the video, you can hear me screaming for him to come back. Oh, he's not I'm sure. Back. So I'm sure. Yeah. He, you know, if we didn't go get him, he'd still be out there right now on that bite. You know, yep. he ain't letting go. <laughs> so we got a team together. We got a shield up. We got a group of guys. We went up there. We kicked the gun out of his hand. Um, we were able to get control of him. I was able to get control of the dog, heart out the dog, get him back. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, my teammates uh, dealt with the suspect, rendered medical aid, and you know did all that kind of stuff. Uh, my dog is all black. He's jet black. And you're not going to see blood on black right. fur very well, right? right. We and talked so, about this, like carrying black gloves on duty and not being able to see the color of the fluid that may or may not be on your hands. Totally. They're tactical, but it's not cool when you're in one of no. those critical situations. Yeah. So it, it's funny. I pull him back and I'm like, you know, he's, checking he, him he's like, wearing, is he wearing a ballistic vest? No. Is that not part of the, the department policy or you choose not to? I mean, people have questions about this. I do. Why wouldn't you be yep. wearing a, why wouldn't you be, were you wearing a ballistic vest? Yeah. So why isn't your dog wearing a ballistic vest, man? So it's, it, there's no policy for it for the canines. Um, it's, it's really a preference okay. type of an issue. Um, for me, they're, they're hot, they're heavy, they're cumbersome for the dog. And you want them to wear that 12 hours a day uh-huh. out searching, out working. You're wearing them out faster. Uh, I, I prefer to run my dog naked. It's, it's less that suspects are going to grab onto or going to grab and, and try to physically okay. pull the dog off bite. I just, I prefer not to. Um, I think that the chances of the dogs getting shot is significantly less than the dogs getting stabbed yeah. on calls. And those ballistic vests don't stop knife wounds anyway. Really? No. No, you can stab right through those. Wow. I had no idea. Unlike <laughs> if you're wearing plates, obviously the knife's going right. Yeah, plates, yeah, yeah. But but you can't put but plates on a dog, right? Right. Yeah, your soft armor not going to do well. And most dogs get shot in the head and the face by suspects as they're coming in for the bite, right? Because it's the narrow profile, right? Yeah. And, the, and the suspects are just trying Laying to lay down, down on what they can see. And you can wear a ballistic vest, not going to not going to protect gonna you from getting shot in the head and the face. So, so you've done the math, man, and the odds, and you've worked. You've been doing this long enough. This is the decision you made. Some might argue, hey, that's a bad idea, but yep. there's going to be two camps for everything. It, exactly. And I don't blame the guys that do it. It doesn't hurt to be safe, right? It, it's just something that I've I've chosen not to do. So, so he comes off, you hard out him, which basically means for those of people that don't know, maybe you can explain that. You, you, I mean, my my limited knowledge on this is effectively you've got to go in there, get underneath that collar, and get enough of that collar to where the dog has a tough time breathing and and recognizes, oh, it's time for me to let go, right? Which would be the equivalent of the e collar. Working, it's doing what it was supposed to do. Yeah, exactly. And then what, man? You just you just start just covering the dog, like oh, just trying to figure yeah, it out, I'm like just, looking for holes. Yep. I'm I'm just I'm rubbing my hands on every square inch of his body and just breaking everything. Looking at like 
I, I mean, I, I you're just, assumed. You're just, yeah, he's you just hit, have to find right? it. He's hit. Yeah. Like you, you know, he's hit. Yeah, well, in 100%. your head. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, I check him out, and I just can't believe that I don't find any blood. Can't believe it. Right. Well, the <laughs> the I guess the kind of the the funny side to this is he obviously had been on bite for a little while, so he's got a lot of suspect blood around his face. Mm-hmm. So as I'm kind of you know checking his body and stuff, he rubs his face up and he gives me a kiss. Oh shit! Rubs his face across my face. Well, I don't know. I don't so know. My, I don't know if that's funny or, or our, not, man. Uh, so our, our patrol sergeant gets on scene and he comes running up and he's like, dude, are you okay? What's wrong? You know, and he's grabbing me. And I'm like, what? fine. You yeah. know what? what? Fine. He's like, you got blood all over your face. Do you? He's like, yeah, all over the whole side. <laughs> Just, I look like, you know, came out of Braveheart or something, but <laughs> so, you know, it's ah, things, but. yeah, I mean, <clears throat> so yeah, obviously everybody's checking everybody at this point because there's been bullets and fine. And, and so that comes off. I mean, at what point, I mean, the adrenaline and the cortisol is at all time high. I mean, sure. I mean, I can imagine you've been in other incidents, but this is pretty, this is pretty crazy. Um, and hats off to the other officers and their marksmanship. Oh, I don't care what level. Do you guys run dots? Red dots? Uh, our SWAT guys do. Um, some of our firearms instructors do. I know they're trying to transition us to it. Uh, I don't I don't think either one of them had gotten red dots at the time of this. So I should ask that question for those nerds out there that are wondering, like, what was he shot with? Was he shot with a carbine? Was he shot with a pistol? Both of them uh, shot 9 mil. 9 mil. Yep. The, basically a jujitsu match happening on the ground with, with the suspect and a, and a dog and they did not hit the dog. No. Can I ask where those rounds were placed? Yeah. Um, one of the, one of the officers, um, they, they both told me after the fact we were, they did everything they could to not hit my dog. And I, I got to love them for it. Cause right. you know, our dog's a tool. And I know that if that ultimate sacrifice needs to be made, you know, mm-hmm. we're going to make it, but I appreciate them in that probably most stressful incident of their life too. Can't imagine taking that little bit of time. Right. Uh, one of the guys, uh, through his first round, actually, he's, he was telling me that he was, he was pulling the trigger. Um, and the dog kind of flipped over the top of the suspect. And as he's going, he pulled down, he pulled that round down and it actually went through the bumper of one of the cars that was set up for cover. Mm. And they, they both required, they both, uh, did the best torso placements that they could. And uh, I want to say there were, there were uh, quite a few rounds that went into the lower back, um, just kind of based on the angles and, and yeah. how that all went down. Um, I believe, I don't, I've never seen the autopsy report, but I believe that um, there was a round that traveled up his spine um, that, that was the turned the light switches off. Yeah. Um, wow. I, I, the reason I ask is not to be gory or no, add, no. I don't want to sensationalize this. I just, for those people that spend time on the range um, and, you know, shooting paper, standing still, or even maybe doing a little moving and shooting and your target's on the ground and it's rolling around and you have something else that you don't want to shoot on top of it. What a, what a crazy situation. Uh, And that sounds like um, some pretty, some pretty fantastic marksmanship under, under duress. Yeah. And I, and I got to say, I got to appreciate their restraint too. There was two shooters in two different uh, positions. Mm And I want to say seven or eight rounds total. Mm. And, you know, there were a lot of other guys out there that probably could have just started shooting. Right. And you see this quite, quite frequently. Absolutely. Yeah. Sympathetic fires. Right. That's a real thing. And I'm really glad that everybody had that restraint that, you know, 
they didn't need to shoot. It was that job was being handled and taken care of and, and worked out really well. But that's what happens when you work with guys that are at a very high level of training mm-hmm. and proficiency, right? And, so, and that is the point. And if you hadn't said it there, I would have got to it later with why our officers need more training, not less training and, or an assumption that they've had enough once they've graduated the academy. But we'll, right. I digress. We'll move back to that one, I think. Okay. So we left off with, you've got blood on your face and you're able to finally walk away from this knowing, at least knowing or still knowing, but probably not believing it, that your dog has not been shot and he's not dead. Yep. What happens next? You go back, you, you, because you weren't a shooter, do you get sequestered? Like all of this, how does this work down, work now? Yeah. So I, we all uh, essentially kind of got sequestered once everything stabilized on scene. Uh, they went through, figured out who, who were shooters, what was everybody's involvement, who, who are going to be witnesses, all this kind of stuff. Right. So they um, identified the two shooters uh, and then they identified me as, as the canine handler as being the one that initiated the use of force. And what was crazy was they asked me, Hey, do you want a uh, legal representation? Do you want an attorney? So why do I need this? <laughs> well, I mean, I thought about it for a minute and you know, I'm like, mm, I don't know. And then it, you know, it, it really hit hard. No, you, you initiated a use of force that led to a person dying, to a person dying. My actions potentially down the road are going to be heavily scrutinized. Right. But, and it could be spun in a million different ways as to how they wouldn't have had to shoot him if I would have done something differently. Right. And so I said, yeah, of course, of course I want an attorney. Why wouldn't I want someone looking out for my own personal best interest? So, wow. Yeah. You know, it, so that, I kind of want to separate them a little bit here in that, that, that shooting incident was obviously stressful, was obviously stressful for all of us. That's a, that's a big deal. It's not something that we do every day. It's not something that we take lightly. Yeah. There was a lot of stress in that. And when it was over, there was an awful lot of relief, but I think it's important that people understand that just because that, that incident is over, doesn't mean that you go back to baseline and you immediately return to normal and you feel good. What you go through after that is miserable, absolutely miserable. Can you detail that for us? <clears throat> yeah. So we all go back uh, to the police station to get sequestered. Um, like I said, this uh, is essentially now considered a homicide investigation, right? We are all potentially suspects of a homicide. So the district attorney's office has to come out. They send out investigators. They've got to interview everybody. They've got to research law, your policy. They've got to make sure that everything that was done was done correctly in accordance with established law and procedure. Right. And if, if there's stuff that's not, they got to look into it. Right. But that doesn't happen, you know, in the 45 minute TV show right. with three commercial breaks. Right. So we go back to the PD. I'm in a, I'm in my own uh, conference room. Um, we're waiting around for hours. I get to talk to my attorney for a little bit, just as a, you know, kind of brief him as to what happened and what my role was and that kind of thing. And then um, there's so much going on that they said, Hey, we, we're not going to get to your guys' interviews. Why don't you guys go home? So they decided we can go home. But um, as a part of uh, our critical incident stuff at work, uh, we have a clinician that would come in as part of our um, uh, peer support team. Yep. Right. They, they want to check in with you. They want to make sure you're okay. They want to give you some advice. So, uh, this is part of my, my issue with how these things go down is the door blows open to the conference room that I'm sitting in and in comes our clinician. And I'm, it's just you in there. 
Uh, it's me and one other guy keeping me company. Okay. So yeah. So they got an officer that's assigned to you. Yeah. This time. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So I'm sitting there just like I am right now. I've got an energy drink on the table and I don't say a word and that door blows open. And first thing out of her mouth is I already don't like what I see. Energy drinks aren't good for you. <laughs> and, and I'm like, listen, lady, I'm having a bad day. I'm exhausted. I, I've been up a lot of hours. Don't fucking lecture me. Please. I already have a mother. Yeah. You know, give me a break. But she's supposed to be our therapist, right? She's supposed to be that one that. I don't, maybe she's trying to bring some comedy <laughs> to the table or to, you know, some lightheartedness to it, but tell you what, wrong she, place, wrong time. She man. absolutely missed it. And then she wanted to give me the, all the lectures and all I could think of is I just want to go home. Just yeah. That home. sounds poorly played, man. Yeah. So, uh, I deal with her, we deal with everything and we get to go home. Well, do you think that anybody's going to sleep that night, especially knowing that you've got to come in for an interview? Well, I couldn't. Probably the most important interview that you could ever have. Not you, not your, not your family. Nobody's sleeping, man. No. Nope. So, uh, we go in the next day. Um, the, the two guys uh, that were shooters and me, they interviewed everybody else the night before for all the witness statements and, and all that kind of stuff. So we go in and, and we give our interviews. And I think all of us, uh, felt like a weight had been kind of lifted. You want to you could get that out of there. You want to get it all off your chest and you don't want to forget the detail, the, right? You, I mean, there's so much that you want to say, you want to make known, you know? So I think we, we definitely felt like some of the weight had been lifted after that. Yeah. So, so I, for people that haven't maybe heard the show before or haven't heard about how this process works, you get sequestered as an officer. If you're involved in one of these critical incidents, they take you to them. You're on your own, but you're, or you have an officer assigned to you. It's basically, they're keeping an eye on you, but you cannot, you cannot say a word about what happened. You can talk about anything and everything else, but you can't talk about the incident. And until you're debriefed, right? So, or until you go through your actual, you know, deposition debriefing or whatever it is. And what you're saying is, is now you've had to, you've had to go from the, from the field, from the, from the scene to the, the, the station. Um, in some cases, I know they take people to hotels or whatever, and they put them in rooms. So they're not actually like in an interrogation room or whatever. And you mentioned that we're investigating a homicide now, but you know, making, so that doesn't make the officer feel like a criminal, right? However, there are components of this where I understand they're taking, basically have to take pictures of you. They have to take your, 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 your guns, they, or your, 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 your tools. Uh, they have to take pictures. You take side on pictures, like taking mug shots. They go through this whole process. Um, again, you're not saying a word. You're just being processed. Uh, they, they, anyhow. And then what you're saying is, is now I didn't get to say anything and I can't go home and talk to my wife about this because this is, would be a violation of the policy. And it also puts the investigation at risk. Right. So you have to wait to come back the next day. And you've had this, let's just say not so uh, subtle, uh, uh, clinician, uh, <laughs> right. come in and kind of piss you off. Right. And right. I, I get that dude. I'd be pretty irritated, but like not the right time or place, you know, whatever. So you come back in the next day and you've had all this built up. And I also hear what you're saying. And I guess I didn't put this together. It's not just about getting it out there and talking about like all this energy is pent up and you, you're looking to get it out, but you also want to get it out in the right way. Yeah. Um, and sometimes talking through the problem more than one time can be helpful for that, quite frankly. Like, oh, wait a minute. I just realized I was telling so-and-so this and I missed this detail. Now that I think about it and I'm thinking back about it, it actually maybe happened. It actually happened this way. I forgot about this part, but you don't get that luxury. You have to wait and then you sit down, the cameras go on, the tape recorder goes on, and you have to go through the whole process once. And you're at the mercy of someone else's questioning. You know, it's it's... You don't just give a monologue, right? You're, you're answering questions. And yeah. so, 
So all of these things in your memory, you want to make sure all those important details are like you're saying are, are put in and they're put in in the right way. You know, yeah. I guess I didn't. Yeah. I, I, and all the stories that have been told, I never, even, I never got to that to, to where you're, you could be very frustrated and very, which for me would be, would make me very emotional, nearly angry that you're asking good questions, but you're forgetting to fucking ask this one, which is critical in this particular incident. And it's not just for me, it's for everybody, right? Potentially the suspect for that matter, or any other innocent bystander or whatever else. So you have to hope that they're doing a really good job. And I would imagine um, those people that are doing those peop- those types of things are not generally the most well-liked people maybe in the, in the apartment. I mean, who's interviewing you? No, I, I got to say, actually, it's our, we have uh, two lead investigators that are very well-trained and they are spot on. Oh, with good. That's great to know. That's great to know. So yeah. it's not just like the movies where you get the dick who's in internal affairs who comes in, who hates cops and it's got, yeah. a, you know, got a grudge or an ax to grind or something like that. So I want to say it was, uh, we had our two investigators. There was three uh, people from the district attorney's office and my attorney. So there's a, it's a room full of people. It's good. Yeah. It's a room amount. full of people. Yep. All right, so you get this stuff off your chest. Yep. Did they do a good job? Did they get? Did you feel like you got all the yep. all the things out there that needed to get out there? Yep, one hundred percent. Then what? Then I'll tell you that now the real stress starts. One hundred and ten percent. The stress after the fact blows away the stress that you dealt with during that incident, hands down. Uh, I'll start off with um, how the department treats us, right? Um, they definitely treated us well. They, they definitely had our, our, our well-being in mind of thing, you know, as far as how things were going, we had peer support people that were assigned to us to check in on us. Right. But, um, we didn't, I didn't know when I came in for my interview, I still didn't know, am I, am I off work? Am I on admin leave? Mm -hmm. Or do you expect me to put on a uniform tomorrow? Do I have to come back to work tomorrow? And if I'm off, how long am I off? Nobody could tell me I couldn't get an answer. Right. And then that same therapist that was all pissed off at me for drinking an energy drink is supposed to be the one that if I have problems, I'm supposed to call her. I'm supposed to call her. Uh, It doesn't work. Right. Probably not doing that. Probably (laughs) not. No. And, and I, I got to tell you, she, she's a nice lady. Um, I've met her many times. I've done a lot of critical incident debriefs with her. She has good intentions. Uh, sometimes her bedside manner, not so great. Look, man, I've met a lot of nice people, but they're not great officers. I've met right. a, lot of, a lot of nice doctors that are shit doctors. I've met a lot of, not a lot, or a lot of nice coaches that aren't good coaches. Like yep. nice and sure. effective sure. or irrespective of one another. Yeah. So, uh, so we get some, you know, some, some answers and then we get some time off, right. To, to try to let us. Like then and there on that day before you leave the building, or does it take some time? How long are you left kind of hanging on this? Uh, it took a day or two before I finally got a final answer. A day or two. So you're just like, I'll just wait for your call? Right. Uh, okay. Yep. So um, I ended up getting the rest of that week off. So they gave me, what, three, two, three days? And then I had my normal days off. So I had like what, six days off. Okay. And then I was expected to be back at work. Um, okay. So this is really where where it starts to get heavy, right? I mean, this is now where your family is getting involved. Do they want to make sure you're okay? Right. And I, I told my parents, I told, you know, people that I've been in relationships with my girlfriend at the time, we'd only been together maybe two months when this happened, but I tell them when something happens, you will hear it from me. I will call you, you know, and no news is good news. If it takes me a little while to call you, let you know, I'm okay. I'll let you know. Um, but now this is now everybody's got questions. Now everybody wants to know what's going on. Right. 
my partners have kids, their kids are freaking out. Their wives are freaking out. They, you know, they, the extended families want to know what happened. Right. And if, if you have people that are kind of pervy to the politics of going on now, they're freaking out. Well, what happens next? Yeah. So can I, let me ask you, like, what are they, is it more of a curiosity of like, what was the actual incident or is it more of a fear of what's going to happen to you? Or is it a little bit of both? It's, it's both. They obviously want to know what happened, right? What what did my loved one just go through? Mm -hmm. But then it's, it's an absolute fear. It's, well, did you do something wrong? Are you going to, are you going to end up in jail? Got it. Are are you going to end up on CNN? That's the assumption, right? Are we going to have cameras out out in front of our house? Mm -hmm. Are we going to be harassed online? Are we going to, and that's a very real thing for the, for our families. And it's horrible that we have to now put them through that. So now they're freaking out about all of those details. They're also trying to deal with us who are obviously now coming down from, you know, these chemical dumps that we've dealt with. Right. And uh, I'll tell you me personally, I had some pretty significant physiological reactions to that, that stress, stress. right? This was cumulative stress for my whole career. And this was kind of one of those little bit of a deal breaker on this one was I I had had so much stress built up. Um, I had been involved in another incident. We had another officer involved shooting eight days before this one where I had a little bit of a role. I wasn't part of the shooting or anything like that, but it was stressful. It was. You're you're having to go through basically the same type of stuff. This was kind of the the point in time. Oh, and I think I forgot to, I neglected to mention that um, this shooting incident occurred the week of the Derek Chauvin trial verdict. So this uh, was probably the worst week in history for us to have been in an officer involved shooting with a black male suspect who did not survive. So I'm going to go back to the family component. They're watching all of this stuff going down on the, on the trial. I mean, this was at the, nobody was talking about anything else but this at the time. So their fear is being exacerbated by, by all of this and totally legit, by the way, totally legit. Cause they see Derek Chauvin on television and then they personalize it. They they see you. Right. Are you guys, are we going to go through the same thing? Oh man. So the physiological stuff in terms of kind of what your body's doing, like during this time, I mean, uh, I, I can't even imagine. I mean, I've been through some stressful shit before, but, and I know how my body responds to it. One of those things is total, I don't sleep like I get this huge uh, adrenaline and cortisol bump it, uh, or a uh, dump. It, it totally jacks up, um, my circadian rhythm, if you will. Like oh, I'm yeah. not sleeping. I don't know if it's daytime or nighttime. Yeah. I lose my appetite. Um, my digestive system, like my GI tract, just does not know what to do from a stress perspective. It is very uncomfortable. It's very, it's like being sick. It's uh, real. It is it's like being real. sick. I can only imagine it's similar to, I have no idea, but it's similar to like trying to detox from, <laughs> from one of these, these things people are taking out on the street in terms of our, our narcotics that your body is just like trying to readjust and figure yep. this shit out. Yep. And it's not comfortable at all. No. And it, it's not anything, uh, that you have a lot of control. control over. Yeah. That's the biggest, that's the biggest right? challenge in it. Yeah. We, we've all been through a lot of stressful stuff. Cause you know? you know why you're feeling it, right? You just can't stop it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, at first, you, not really, you, you just kind of think, oh, I don't feel well, but I need to, you know, I'm going to tough it out and I'm going to push through. But then, yeah, once you identify it, then you realize, yeah, this is why I'm feeling the way that I'm feeling because of this stress. 
well, then the real question is, how do I, how do I fix this? How do right? I deal with it? Yeah. And you know, we've all been through stressful stuff. When I, I, I had started when I was 22, my body was a lot different than I am now. Yep. I'm, I'm 36 now. Yep. Those changes as you, as you progress and you get a little bit older, man, those, I never had digestive problems in my early twenties. Right. Are you right. kidding me? Right. 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 And, and then, yeah, now, man, it, it, I, I was throwing up my, I, you know, wow. I didn't eat well. Right. And, um, I ended up coming down with uh, shingles, which I guess that you can attribute to, to stress. stress. Yep. So I had, I had shingles across my chest or on the Very backside. painful. Super Very painful. painful. Yeah. Super painful. And that, and that was triggered by stress. Nothing I could control, but I had to deal with that. Uh, I took my, my heart wasn't feeling right. My just the, the stress, right. I feel like I drank way too many energy drinks. I was just pounding. So I took my blood pressure at home and it was like 194 over 122. And it's never been that high in my life. And that's sitting on the couch. It's pretty high, man. And so, uh, you know, like I said, my girlfriend and I had only been together a couple months and she's seeing all this stuff. And she's like, you, you need to go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Your body is not, you keep saying you're okay. Cause that's what I kept saying. I'm like, I'm fine. Fine. I'm, I'm stressed, but I'm fine. But my body's telling a different story. And so I ended up going to the doctor. I got put on a bunch of meds, try to get that blood pressure down. Cause that's like stroke risk, you know? And try to get things kind of leveled back out and the the physiological stuff can last a good long time. And I talked to other guys that were a part of this and other guys that have been part of other critical incidents. They tell you the same thing, you know? And I think it's really important that we get that out to people in the first responder community that it's okay to, to have these symptoms and to feel this way. To not feel okay. It's okay yeah. to not feel okay. And what's, right. what's really important is you just need to identify it. And let's start taking steps to feel better. So aside from going to the doctor and I'm immediately kind of taking the life jacket, like, dude, we got to get this down. So take this right. for now. What does the rest of that process look like? So I ended up, uh, I didn't, that, that therapist that, that pissed me off about my energy drink. I, I don't want to go see her. That, that makes sense. So what are your alternatives? What are your choices? Right. That's where I was at. And um, asking the question like of the department or whatever, like, so I, this is not an option for me. What are my options? No, I, I took it upon myself and did okay. some research. Um, so you're advocating for yourself in this sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, cops, cops don't trust people. They don't want to just talk to anybody. You know, I'm not going to just hop on Google and, and say, you know, therapist near me. Oh, that, well, they got a four-star review. I'll, right. I'll check them out. Maybe they'll be good, right? <laughs> no. So uh, I end up uh, through a friend uh, getting in touch with a therapist in, uh, who well, at the time was in San Ramon. Um, who was a retired police officer and in his retirement is now doing uh, therapy and he loves to specialize in first responders. Mm. And uh, he came very highly recommended. And so I said, you know what, let's do it. My insurance didn't cover it. It was uh, 155 bucks a visit. This is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, I was just having this conversation with another guy the other day. It's 150 (laughs) to about 200 to 250 in some cases bucks an hour. Right. So and it's, this is going to be cash out of pocket because you're not using the, the, uh, provide or the, whoever your provider insurance provider is recommended or said you should use. Right. Um, but which, which to you was not an option for you. Um, and I'm going to say based on that, just that, that reaction alone is inappropriate as that man said. And of course I'm probably very biased to this, that that person needs to probably be questioned as to what they're doing and how they're doing it. Uh, because anyways, Anyway, so you go outside the network and this costs you money, right? It costs you money. Not everybody has, you know, while police officers make a, generally speaking, a, uh, you know, make a good wage, 
depending on where you're living, what your life situation is like, you know, like, are you divorced? Are you paying, you know, are you taking care of multiple families? Those kind of things. Uh, what's going on? That's a lot of money. Well, I mean, it, and it's not, this is not something you're going to do for one or two times and be fixed. No. Right. So this is, this is a thing you need to make a commitment to, and it could be weeks, it could be months, it could be years. Yep. So, it, and, and it's over 600 bucks a month. I mean, that's not, <laughs> if you're on a fixed income, like a lot of people are, that that's something lot. that you have to make a decision about. And to me, it's worth it. Yeah. I would rather pay out of pocket and get what I feel is the best care for the best person to help me rather than just go with who I find on Google. Yeah. You're not bargaining for right. your health. And, right. and too many people are doing that. They're not make, they're not trying to bargain their health away for the best deal right. um, or to check the box. All right. So an, an interesting part about this is, this is somebody that specializes in first responders. So understands the traumas has experienced the thing. Did you say they were an ex officer as well? Yeah. So understands the things that they see, what you see and you right. do, and you have to deal with every day on the street, when you go home, when you come back after critical incidents and things like that. And Again, the point's been made many times on this podcast that the typical the system of health care management, sick management, just in general that we're, we're living in right now, does not account for this. It, it does not account for this. And, and I just had somebody reach out to me the other day after another podcast that I did on, a, on, on a suicide on prevention and awareness <coughs> specific to the military community and that it's the same there, only worse yeah. Because they don't have any, once, once they're discharged, right, they're done. And, and trying to get help there is a, is a, let's just say the things that you guys have to go through is ridiculous. Um, but the point there being is he made this point and he basically said, hey, it's not, it's, it, there's, there's a massive gap in the understanding of what people need in terms of resources. And the rest of society, let's just say, or the general health care system needs to catch up to what the needs, the very specific needs are based on the very specific circumstances for these special populations. Absolutely. So trying to put a special population into gen pop is not going to be an effective means to an end. And that end being First off, getting this person some help, like there needs to be more resources available, like right now, not three or four weeks from now when we can get you an appointment, but right now. And, and then also understanding that don't put, don't put the fresh grad, right. Who's just come out of, right. you know, going back to going back to you, putting the 22 year old in front of the 36 year old officer who's seen way more shit and dealt with way more stuff than this 22 year old could have accumulated in their, their period of time. Don't put that person in front of this person um, because Again, going back to my original question, what business did you have as a 22-year-old giving, you know, an old married couple marital advice sure. on, on how to own themselves? You don't. You're not there yet. You haven't. So what, who should be doing that? Again, it comes right. to the territory, but finding somebody in the, in the, in the, uh, that can help you and, and, and you can relate to, but you, you mentioned a huge word there and that's trust, uh, and, and trust that they can understand what you're going through, but also trust that what, what you tell them is, uh, is dealt with in a, in a, an appropriate kind of way. Um, when, while most of these people are mandated reporters, if they, if there was anything that came up in those meetings that maybe they thought you were going to hurt yourself or somebody else or whatever, they'd have to, they'd have to send that up the flagpole, up the, up the chain. Also understand what is and what isn't a red flag. 
and what is almost normal, right? right? And what can be dealt with and has the tools in order to deal with it. I just want to make that point because it's come up several times this month as we've been sort of um, talking on, on this subject. And the fact that you were able to do that and self-advocate for yourself to go out and do it right away is not a thing that a lot of people do in my from what I've been hearing and what I've been told, they have to go through the system first of finding out all the bad shit, which just gets even more frustrating, create erodes any trust that might be there anyway, before they find, uh, finally find their way in. So, um, it, it's just so sad to me too, that it's in, in our, our first responder community, it's taboo still mm. to talk about this stuff. You know, first responders in all of them, dispatchers, firefighters, everybody, it, got into this because they want to serve. They want to do this, right? They, they are very physically active people, right? A lot of cops that I work with are former athletes. And so I always tell people when we have these serious talks, Hey, you've, you've been injured before, right? You've, mm-hmm. you've torn a muscle, you've sprained a joint, you, you know, the process to make that better, right? You got to ice it. You got to rest it. You got to get your, your strength back, your range of motion. You got to, you got to work your way back to healthy to back to normal. So why is it that you're completely understanding of a muscle tear or a sprained joint and you're okay with that, but you can't associate your mind to the muscle. You can't associate that some of these critical incidents kind of hurt your brain as a muscle a little bit and, and you've got to rehab it. You've got to let it rest. You've got to give it some time to get back to where we're at. And we're okay to talk about our physical injuries, but it's very taboo in first responders to talk about anything that's going on in your mind. Yeah, uh, this is what I've been told about that. Like the, the taboo has to, comes in with, I think what you, you said early on, which is like, yeah, I'll tough it out. I'm fine, right? And that's just what's expected, right? It's also part of the A-type personality to like, well, I'll just put this over here and I'll deal with it here. I'll, this is a box I need to check out, but now's not a good time. I have these other priorities, Right. That's, that's, that's part of it. The other part of it is, is having the conversation, knowing that it could get out to the other officers or people on your team, which could create some, uh, some amount of concern or distrust or, or whatever. I've, I've heard that as being, they're scared that it's, and that, that, that could then ultimately lead them to have their badge and gun taken away or get them pulled off the truck behind a, a desk or right. whatever. Um, and not be able to do the job that they love, that they signed up for and whatever. So there's all these, these confounding factors that, that totally. sort of go into this. Totally. My question is like, how do we, how do we change that dude? Like, how does that, how, how do we, how do we, how do we reverse that process? We're so good at compartmentalizing it and we're so good at toughing it out for all those years while our, our box gets full. And then it's kind of a freak out moment when that box starts to overflow. So we've got to do a better job of, of dealing with that stuff as it goes in time and not waiting for it to get so bad. I think we also need to change the stigma of this, that when you are actually having a a hard time with something, it's okay to say I'm not okay. And to get some help, it's not, this isn't a death sentence and it's not the end of the world for your job. It's okay to say, I'm I'm, I'm just having a hard time. I need, I need to get some help. It, you're not, you're not going to get fired from your job, hopefully more than likely on, on, you know, the vast majority of this, but you need to do the right thing to take care of you as a person, you as the officer, the fireman, the dispatcher, you can't help others if you're significantly broken and, and look at that person that you are. I mean, look in the mirror and look at what your family is and your friends are seeing in you. Are you giving your best to them every day? 
or are you just toughing it out well enough to, to get by? You know, getting like, by, yeah, getting by is not the answer. That ain't no way to live. Right. Right. If you're just getting by every day and you're toughing it out, how, are we talking that you've been toughing it out for years and, and you're having all of these problems, these demons in the closet that you're not dealing with? Well, what kind of a father are you being or mother? Mm-hmm. And how much better of a person would you be if, if you could address that you're having those problems and start working on it? You know, my, the guy that I went to and, and saw for therapy, he used to say, you know, we're not going to fix this overnight. Rome wasn't built overnight. Right. But if we can identify some of the problems that you're having, we can work on some coping mechanisms to help you start feeling better. If in a week, two weeks, you feel 10% better. That's great. That's success. That's a success because from there, your, your happiness is going up. Your confidence is going up. And then we're going to keep working for the next 10% and the next 10%. It's not, you're, you're all better overnight, but it's helping you to feel better in every way, a little bit at a time, because this is a marathon of a job. Mm You know, it, I'm halfway through my career, you know, and, I, and I've already had all these problems that, you know, this has really forced me in the last year to take some steps to identify it, to, to try to better myself, to not be this person that I was and just hiding everything and, and not talking about it. I still am not great at it by any means. I still have my own list of issues, but I'm learning to, to deal with it and it was really eye-opening for me at how well it has helped me in my life. And I want other people that are feeling the way that I used to feel to know that there's hope there that mm. 10%, 10% every couple of weeks to feel just a little bit better. Get enjoy, enjoy life more with your family, you know, maybe not have such disdain for your job or maybe realize that this job, this career that you have doesn't have to be your entire identity, mm-hmm. you know, that, they're, they're going to move on when you're not here anymore. We, we hear that. Right? Yeah, we hear that a lot on this end, man. Just, so yeah, that that's your identity is completely tied up in your gun and your badge, but you are a person. Right. You know, at the end of and, and a lot of us lose that identity mm. and it's a, it's a sad thing, but we're so committed to what we're doing and we love it and we want to help people. But you know, you, you can't help people if you're broken at the same time. So no, you can't, you can't pour from an empty cup as they say I, that, I wonder, like, could you share, like, for people that are like, look, I get it. Like what Chris is saying is, you know, is really kind of ringing home for me right now. And I know I need to be doing stuff, but I'm not, I'm just not quite sure. wonder if there's any, like, has there been like a tool or a practice or, you know, a mantra or whatever that has really helped you that you really can kind of hang your hat on since really seeking this help? that was like very impactful that for you, you were like, dude, why wasn't I doing this before? This is not like, this isn't rocket science. You know, I could have, I could have done this. Like if I just maybe thought about it a little bit and here's the kind of the, uh, the analogy I draw, like in working with uh, the canine canine trainer, like we show up to some of these lessons or that he would show up to us and he would go through some stuff, walk through some stuff. And I'd be uh, like, I, I'm really frustrated that I can't, do a better job communicating with the dog. This would be me talking. Uh, I can't communicate with the dog to get her to do this. Or, you know, I want, I want to know better. He goes, Oh, no problem. We'll just do this right over here. And I look at it and I go, the fuck didn't I think of that? Like, that is the simplest thing. Like, it just makes perfect sense. I mean, I'm a smart person. I'm not an idiot. I'm not like, not a genius, but I could have totally done that. And all the frustration I felt in the last week from the last lesson or whatever, was just this little nuanced little thing that I could have completely applied all on my own. And I think people need that. Like I needed that to then go, look, this isn't that tough. Like it really isn't. I'm making this tougher than it needs to be. Some of this stuff is so 
obvious. It almost like, I almost feel like an idiot at the end of the day. I go, how come I didn't figure that out? Can, is anything like that in this process for you? Totally. Totally. Um, <clears throat> I think I, I really struggled with kind of looking in like the, the inner perspective of, of identifying what I'm feeling and trying to figure out why I'm feeling that way. And I really, I, I would fail myself, man. I, when I was a single guy, before I met my girlfriend, I, I would have my days off and I would be so burnt out of dealing with people. And I essentially close all the blinds and I would just want to stay home. Just isolate. Yeah. yeah. And, and that just started to become normal to me. And then when I met my girlfriend, she's not about that. She likes to, you know, be a social butterfly mm-hmm. and wants to go out and do mm-hmm. things. And then in the process of her kind of nicely nudging me to go out and interact with people, I realized, man, if I would have just forced myself to go out of the house a little bit more and not think that everyone around me is bad and not think that, mm. you know, every, you know, being, being in the situations I, I'm not, I'm not going to be in fight or flight situations. I can be with groups of friends and groups of people that'll make me feel a little bit better. If I would have done a little bit more of that, I think I would have been able to clear some of the fog out of my mind. Yeah. Purge the valve a little bit. Yeah. yeah. And, and that was always my big issue was I never identified what was wrong. I just, I knew something was wrong, but I could never put my thumb on it. Mm. And that therapy really helped me to figure out, you know, identify what those issues were. Because then once you have those, those specific things identified, then you can learn how to cope and deal. Right. And, and you learn that the next time that you're sitting on the couch, with all the blinds closed and you just don't want to be around people. Well, why am I feeling like this today? Did something happen this week that I don't feel good about? What do I, you know, maybe I need to go for a walk. Maybe, you know. That's the biggest piece right there. So I've been through a little bit of a process of my own. And um, I've shared this before. I've seen several therapists in my, in my life for different things, different times, different situations that have come up, um, I think, that are very normal, right? Yeah. At, particularly at this point. And I, don't, I didn't think at the time they were unnormal either. But going back to what you were saying there and the, the therapist helping you to identify for yourself. So I think one of the things to put on the side for people is, is like, you're not going to somebody who's better than you. That's going to fix you. You're going, honestly, like my experience was that I I would go in and not all of it was positive, by the way. Like I I saw some therapists that I thought were very unhelpful and, you know, some that were very helpful at different times and depending on the things, the point was the ones that were most helpful, the ones that just helped me identify like, holy shit, Scott, you totally ignored that. Like, or that red flag has been there forever and you didn't even see it. Like you didn't see the forest for the trees. And for me, it wasn't like, I feel stupid. Like going back to the, you know, training the dog analogy, it was more like, fuck, like that's so easy to do. Like to peel back the layers of the onion to, yeah. to understand like why I'm feeling what I'm feeling. Uh, like I'm pissed. I'm not really pissed. There's something else there. Like I, anger is the first thing that surfaces for me. I think it, it does this for a lot of, a lot of males, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's really easy. We're really good at being angry at shit and, and then taking our emotions to that level and kind of keeping it at level anger or whatever that is. But if you peel back the, the, the layers of the onion to find out why you're angry, there's generally some other stuff down there. You just need to figure out how to do it on your own. And that's what therapy is about. It's about yeah. going and figuring out the tools that make, that help you work. So getting with the right person is a big part, big yep. part of that. But so simple, man. Like who would think, yeah. you know, like I just need to go out and talk to people more. Eh. Like I, I gotta be honest. Like I've, I've isolated at times in the last year with all the stuff that we've, you know, that's been going on. Cause I don't like getting into the conversations, you know, sure. about, the so the the politics and whatever else like, eh, 
Who's going to be at the party? Now, I don't want to go because I don't want to deal with that. But at the same time, like, that's part of it too. Like, what social groups are you a part of? What changes do you need to make? Right. Uh, those things. And, you know, hanging around with all cops all the time probably isn't healthy all the time. And hanging yeah. around with people that are engaging in other behaviors maybe not be be a good thing, but understanding how to how to cope and trying little things and then examining was that helpful and then why. Uh, that's what therapy was for me. Uh, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, so um, I think the the next question I'd have is, is like, this has been, sorry, this is a, like just over a year ago or uh, a year and a half ago. About a year and a half ago. Yeah, and you yeah. just effectively, it took over a year to ultimately get cleared of any... <laughs> wrongdoing as an officer, like, Hey, you checked out basically what I've, I've heard it stated as, um, good buddy, Craig, this is like, namaste. You did. Okay. <laughs> like that it goes in the file and you move on. How do you move on from something like that? Well, I think once you, once you, you hit all of those check, check boxes that you wanted to get through, uh, for me, at least it, it has been kind of a way to look back and, and learn from it and see you know, what went well, what didn't go well. And, you know, when you're going through all that, the last thing you want is to ever have to do that ever again. Mm -hmm. Right. I don't ever want to have to go through, you know, my stuff, my stomach feeling bad and the shingles and the stress that lasted for over a year. I don't, I don't ever want to have to deal with that again. Right. But now I'm kind of a, to the point where I dealt with it. I made it through. I learned a lot of good coping mechanism. This, this therapy has helped me a lot. Um, it's brought my relationship closer with my girlfriend mm -hmm. and, you know, I feel like I'm way more prepared now to deal with something like that than I ever was beforehand. So, it, you know, it is a long process that, that over a year wait to get cleared from the district attorney to say that, you know, you guys aren't going to be in any trouble for this. And, you know, the lawsuits haven't dropped and the, you know, all, all these things that you think are going to be terrible that are eventually going to come hit you when they haven't happened, you, you kind of breathe a little bit mm. and you start to feel a little bit better. You know, we, the only bad, the, the one negative thing that I always hoped and prayed wouldn't happen happened. And it ended up being a cool thing. We, uh, I never wanted to be on the news for this, right? We were on the local news for a little blip and that was it. But we ended up uh, less than a week after this incident, we were on Hannity on Fox news one night. And, no shit. Yeah. yeah. And it, it ended up being a really positive article or a, a, a okay. program that he put on. And I was like, man, okay, this, because yeah, that could go either way. One of my worst nightmares <laughs> was this hitting yeah. big news and it did, but it wasn't so bad. And we made it, we made it through. So, you know, I, I try to take the good, what I've learned from it, the, the positive parts. And I try to let go of the negative and yeah. Focus on the, on the positive. Yeah. I wonder how you do that. Like, how do you communicate this message? And I think this is probably like kind of, as we're wrapping up here, how do you communicate this, this message back to the 22 year old that you were, you know, 13 years ago or whatever. Um, so that they come up different than you did. And maybe they're not in that same situation because here's the thing you just mentioned. I mean, you're halfway through the likelihood of something like this happening again is very high. It's very high, particularly on the streets that you work and live on, right? Like it, it's very high. So you're in a much, you're much you're equipped in a much different way at a much different level to deal with it in the future. How do we, how do we communicate? I think it needs to communicate two ways because you mentioned leadership as being a huge missing piece. Uh, we could do an entire podcast on that sometime about, you know, kind of 
how to be a good leader and where those, where the missing pieces are. Um, and a lot of it has to do with longevity. And you mentioned that as well It's like people just aren't around very long to ever be held accountable to or see the fruits of, you know, sort of fruits of their labor held accountable to the poor decision-making that they made and, or, um, when they're making as a result, as they're making these decisions, they don't have to think about the consequences, but it still needs to be communicated up. Um, and change needs to happen there. And maybe you don't have the influence on, on that right now. Maybe you just, maybe you don't, you can only hope that over time and the message continue, you know, gets there. And then maybe some point 13, you know, 10 years down the road, you're in that leadership position and you can help to literally change policy. But it also needs to happen on the, on the down, it needs to go downstream. If it's not happening from leadership, then it, and, or those that have been the wand or the sword has been, you know, you are the leader and you make this policy and you make this decision and what you say goes, that doesn't mean you can't be a leader in the space. Right. We've talked about this on the show too. This guy, Blake, Blake Kreider, um, is an executive production. He's like, start being a leader. Now you don't have to be told you're a leader. You don't have to be given a, a rank. You don't have to be given a, a, you know, a title to start leading now. So how can guys like in your position, um, do that? What are you doing now to kind of push it, push it down to the younger the younger generation to help them understand, make them feel okay with this at the same time, maybe by not pissing people off above you, or is that even possible? Oh, well, those that know me know that that's probably not possible. I don't, you know. <laughs> we'll talk about it. I'm then. not very good on the filter side of things, but no. So I'll, I'll say that um, going through these critical incidents and, and the one thing that I've really learned from this one is, you know, we're all control freaks, right? We're type A people. And when things are not, within our control, that's where we start to have these irrational fears and we start to have things kind of go haywire. So I've learned to identify what, what do I have control over and where can I make a positive influence like what we're talking about? And so I think, um, we all like to mentor those that are coming up behind us. Everybody wants to make it better for the next generation, but you have to know that in this line of work, what I've been through is very common. And those that come behind me, are going to experience the same. And so I want to give them every tool that I've learned to help deal with it and prepare them for the day that it comes. And that's where I have a little bit of control. So like I, I got this book, uh, it's called uh, emotional survival for law enforcement. I got this when I got hired as a cop and we had the uh, guy that wrote this book, uh, Kevin Gilmartin came out and gave a presentation okay. right? and it's, it's phenomenal. This talks about everything from, from the start of your career all the way through. I mean, you could read this book, you know, when you get hired, you could read it at five years, 10 years, 15 years, and you're always going to take something away. Okay. It, it's always going to give you something new to, to think about, to realize, to acknowledge where I'm at. So I try to prepare my, my guys that are below me, my recruits, the guys that I work with, um, in an area. And I actually went on Amazon. I bought a bunch of copies of these books and I've identified some guys that I've seen go through some hard times. Um, and I, we've had one-on-one -on -one conversations and I don't want to get into to those because sure. I don't want anybody to ever figure that out. But um, I've given them copies of this book. And um, I know that some of the, the younger guys that have kids and wives, I said, Hey, you, you had that beautiful family before you got into this job. Don't lose sight of that. Right. Don't, don't miss the, don't miss the boat because this book can help you. And you, this book will help your wife understand why 
you are the way you are. So that's a whole nother part of it, right? right? Like it's not just for the officer. It's for anybody (laughs) that might know it's for for mom. It's for dad. It's for the spouse, the partner or whatever, the brother, the sister who may even be on the other side of things. You may not agree politically on anything. That's not what this book is. This is strictly how to deal with the things that come up or identify the things, or at least just be, let's acknowledge and be aware of the stuff that's out there. I mean, we, you know, we were just talking about isolating. Dr. Gil Martin calls it the magic chair that, you go, you know, on your, on your work days, your hypervigilance is up, your chemical dumps are up high, your adrenaline, everything. And then when you go to your days off, you don't go back to a baseline of normal, happy. You're below that. Your body's trying to recover from that. And so when you are so mentally exhausted, physically, emotionally, what do you want to do? You want to sit in your magic chair and you want to close the blinds and you want to watch TV and you want to veg out and you want to try to let yourself recover. We've all been there. No, it's absolutely. not the healthiest thing, right? No. And so, you know, you probably aren't going to recognize it for a long time because I didn't recognize it for a long time. But what if, what if just one wife would read this book and be able to identify that's why my husband's doing that? Right. And with that, she can affect some change and she can help get him up and going and get the family back, you know. Or at least and have a conversation about it. Right. right. And there's, there's so many examples like that in this book that help you identify what's going on. And so I, I really, when I figured out that the only thing that I have control over is the influence that I can maybe give to these younger guys, that's really where I want to pour my heart and soul into it. I can't change the administration. I can't change the lack of leadership. I can't change the fact that we are stuck in this time warp that mm. there's, there's no other options for first responders than there's nothing new really that, that hasn't been there since the nineties status quo. Right. Right. We have the same, we have the same therapy option as we had in the nineties. Yeah. Some, we we talked about this, something very wrong with that. We don't have the ability to say, Hey, when our guys come to us and they say they're burnt out, is there something else we can do for them? You know, can, can we just let them get a, get a week off the street of dealing with all these people and, and, let them have a little bit of a mental health break. Let's get them, let's do some training. Let's do, you know, let, mm-hmm. let's pull them away from taking calls for service and being tied to a radio and being stressed out of your mind and give them a week for some new updated training. What's the newest, latest and greatest. What are you interested in? Let's go do it. Yeah. Something like that. So that's the thing about the training we were talking about earlier is like, and you mentioned you're training your bodies and training our minds. And, um, there's the emotional piece, I think, of getting in touch with, you know, without with the risk of maybe sounding too corny for people that might be on the edge here anyway, uh, checking in with your soul and what's really going on in there uh, before you're forced to. Right. Um, and and there could be some aid being given with regard to this stuff. So yes, getting out on the range, maybe trying the new gear, the new equipment, the latest and greatest there. Um, maybe it's the negotiation, ta- you know, techniques and, and learning how to talk to people uh, or this training your mind to understand what are the, what is it that you might be going through and not make it miserable for them. Yeah. Make it productive, you know, and because I think there's been a lot of training in the last year, no, and it hasn't necessarily been any of that stuff. (laughs) Right. And and I've been, you know, and you could probably go on for days and days about how, how many hours you spent in a classroom or you had to sit in a room watching a video, listening to somebody tell you about how you should be dealing with things differently on the street when they have no earthly idea what it is right. that you're actually doing out there on a regular basis. This goes back to my whole kind of diatribe yeah. earlier and how frustrating that is and how much help millions and millions of dollars have been spent on that stuff and people, and it just goes in one ear and right out the other, but it doesn't just do that because on the trip through, 
It also creates anger. It creates resentment. Uh, it creates a distrust and it, and it, it leads to a bad mental space to be in. Yeah. So, um, yeah, sometimes just, sometimes just a book, you know, and making somebody take some time to go, this is your assignment. Like take two days, read this book. There's a quiz on it when you're done, you know, kind of thing. Maybe, sure. maybe that's the answer. I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, it, there's gotta be a, a middle ground between either you're good and you're fully functioning or hundred percent on the street or you're off. That, that the answer is not to send people home because what's going to happen? Your, your guys are already mentally messed up. They're, they're going gonna, to the magic chair. They're going to the magic chair. Yeah. It's not helpful. They, people that are in these jobs want to work, but maybe they need a break from the status quo to let their mind relax. You know, they need to rehab their mind a little bit. I think there's such an opportunity there. I mean, there's such an opportunity within the, the like the police officers association, uh, within the first responder, you know, association to come together, to close the, to close the gap a little bit and stop. Um, maybe it's don't rely on the, I, I don't like this term. Don't rely on the civilian system of, of way of doing things or the status quo of doing things um, and stop blaming it. For that matter, like it, it's not the right answer. So we need to come up with one. And on the flip side of that, um, th- those that are having issues or are really negative about, look, man, I've been through that system and it's no good. It just makes things worse. Maybe be a little bit more loud, maybe be a little bit more proactive and be involved in some of these other alternative things. And I think, you know, just talking about it starts the process. You know, we, we didn't solve world hunger here. We didn't solve the problem. But if it gets through and helps more people maybe talk about it yeah. and recognize that it, I can't control these things, but I can't control this. And I can help this officer right now. I can help this spouse of this officer right now. Or I can help my spouse maybe understand this differently. Then I guess that's where it starts. I, I guess that's that's where it starts. But yeah, yeah. But, but, but blaming, you know, like what's going on upstream um, it's probably not going to be real healthy or helpful at the same time. It doesn't mean you can't have conversations like meaningful ones, sure. but bitching about it doesn't help any of this. Right. Right. Uh, trying to be proactive about it and being honest about it, I think is different than bitching. Um, yep. but, uh, you got to go downstream. You got to help those people that need help so that when the next 22 year old officer, 23 year old officer jumps on, they're getting some tools and they're getting some skills from somebody they trust, respect, know who's been there doesn't have to have all the answers, but is now being, giving them some tools to peel back layers of the onion, acknowledge, recognize yep. uh, the, the stuff that's going on out there so that they can then take it home as well or to their friends, to their relationships or whatever else. And we're maybe in a little bit different place than we are now, a year from now, two years from now, three years from now. Right. Um, look, Chris, I, I really appreciate you coming in and sharing your story today and your message. Um uh, this has been a really recent thing for you. And um, uh, while I was familiar with the uh, the OIS that you did mention, uh, I didn't have all the details. Um, those are some, that's a pretty harrowing story, man. And you handled yourself well. I, I got to be honest, um, like you handled it really well. Like how I would have expected a 13-year veteran on the street to handle, the, handle that conversation. I can imagine going home from here and, and revisiting or reliving or rethinking about it is a very, very tough thing to do. So I appreciate you coming today and, and handling it the way you did here. And, I, and it, I, I hope it helps people. I think it will. It helped me understand things a little bit different to be able to have a little bit of a different conversation. And um, I wish you the best of luck as you, as you move forward. If there's, I mean, is there anything that I can do to help you, your team, you know, the, the community, 
at all. If there is, just say it, man. No, I, I, you know, like I talked about having, having some, some control over something, right. And you having me on to, to talk about these things, to share my experience. If in, in any way that one word or one sentence of what we talked about today causes a little bit of change in someone's life for the better, it's all worth it. And that's where we start. All right. Well, I appreciate you, man. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Got it. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Iron Sights. If you enjoyed our conversation, you can support our mission by hitting the subscribe button, leaving a review, and sharing the podcast with a friend. I'll see you on the next episode.